Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 255. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Thor Love and Thunder, directed by Taika Waititi, written by Taika Waititi and Jennifer Caton Robinson, and produced by Kevin Feige and Brad Winderbaum. Before we begin our review, I want to let you know about Fan Show Plus, a podcast that is exclusive to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts if you search for the MCU Fan Show channel, or Fanshow Plus, you can subscribe there and hear us talk about extra MCU news and topics, spoiler reviews outside the MCU, like the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series. So make sure you check that out with Fanshow Plus or at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone else who has taken the time to do so. And also make sure you're following us where you can at we are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? Well, I saw a Marvel film in the theater, which is always a good time. Uh, I saw it with our good friend Chris Clow and his wife Rachel, and that was a blast. And uh, I walked around the mall listening to uh, 80s music right before to get some you know, exercise in, some steps in, so I can down a big liter of popcorn or giant thing of popcorn, whatever you want to call it. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was good. It was good times. It was. I was a little surprised that that the what was it? Is it Regal Theaters I went to? Uh, didn't have any like Love and Thunder like merch to buy, you know, like the like a popcorn tin or anything, which I love that stuff. And I was a little surprised I didn't have anything. I, you know, Multiverse of Madness had tons of stuff in multiple right. places, but not Love and Thunder, as far as I know. I know Love and Thunder has stuff. Like I know there's a Mjolnir popcorn bucket that what? Uh, yeah, that exists. So maybe your Regal Theater just uh, just missed it or missed their shipment. I don't know. Or maybe, yeah. uh, well, you saw the movie on Saturday night. Maybe they had already sold out. I don't know. Uh, by the time by the time you got there, but um, yeah, there was the usual promotion for uh, for a Marvel movie. And okay. yes, it's always great to watch a Marvel movie in a theater. And of course, I got to go. I was at my favorite TCL Chinese theater and IMAX on uh, on opening night. Don't always get to be there at that location on opening night, but I was uh, this week. It's a great crowd and a great reaction for a lot of. Awesome Marvel fans who are just super amped up about the latest film. And then, you know, the movie comes out and people see it. And I, I think you don't need me to tell you for listening to this, but reactions haven't necessarily been the overwhelming positive consensus that we are more accustomed to seeing for Marvel movies, although that's kind of been the trend of late, whether you're looking at, uh, with the exception of Spider-Man No Way Home, when you look at three of the last four movies, Eternals, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and now Thor, Love and Thunder, uh, the reactions have been a little bit more divided than we normally see. As far as why that's the case, well, that is an entirely different podcast unto itself, and we will save that for another time. For this episode of the MCU Fan Show, we're just going to focus on explaining our thoughts on Thor, Love and Thunder, and I'll be the one who gets to lead with the positive because... I fell in the camp of absolutely, unabashedly loving this movie. I had very high expectations for Thor Love and Thunder because I was, of course, a big fan of Thor Ragnarok, as many were, and the journey that Thor has been on throughout his entire time in the MCU, but certainly everything that's happened since Thor Ragnarok. I'm a huge Taika Waititi fan, and not just what he's done in the MCU, but outside of the MCU. And then I, of course, love 
this storyline from the comic books that a lot of this pulls from are the storylines from the comic books from Jason Aaron's run on Thor, legendary run on Thor. That was so great and featured so many of the characters and plot points that were lifted for the purposes of this movie. And I loved all of that material from the source and then having the chance to see it adapted through uh, Taika Waititi's vision and also the writing of Jennifer Caton Robinson, who wrote this film with Taika. Very high expectations for Love and Thunder. As much as I could anticipate any MCU film that was on the slate as we finish up everything that Kevin Feige promised to us at San Diego Comic-Con in 2019 before he makes a new set of promises, presumably at San Diego Comic-Con and perhaps also D23 Expo 2022. And so went into this movie, as I said, really kind of expecting the world and almost having to check myself on my expectations. But turns out didn't really need to because I loved this one. I know that was not the reaction that you had, though, Mr. Paul Herman. Well, uh, it, it's funny because we before the show, we talked about I said this is going to be a little bit of the reverse of the last you know, move, you know live actor movie review uh, we did with Multiverse of Madness. <clears throat> you had a complicated relationship with the movie. And as we talked about it during that review, you, you sounded more positive on it than you disliked it. And I think that's going to be very much kind of where I'm going to fall into, you know, barring, you know, the things you didn't like about the last one. And same for me here. Love and Thunder has a lot of great stuff in it. I want to make that very clear. And I did not dis dislike it by any means. I didn't love it. And We'll get into the reasons why, um, but the main stuff is that I liked about it. Um, obviously, Hemsworth's Thor is incredible. I could watch him be Thor all day, and it be and I, I will be entertained. He's just so good. He's so charming. Um, and with the Renaissance of Thor and using you know and his, I think using Hemsworth's uh, Hemsworth's great comedic timing that was discovered late, you know, a little bit later in his career, uh, is just been you know it's been a re revelation if you will. And it's so, it's so charming to see him on screen. Um, I'm going to say it here and there, you're, you might be surprised by this actually, Sean, I actually really enjoyed Natalie Portman in this movie. And for those longtime listeners will know I'm not the biggest Natalie Portman fan. I, I think she ranges from brilliant to mediocre and she, depending on her interest of the, of the role or whatever, I don't know. Regardless, um, I think her, her, her uh, performances in the MCU have been always been just kind of, all over the place. I think her best performance is in the first movie. I like that movie. I think that's, that's pretty solid performance by her. Um, that being said, I, you know, went into this, I thought she'd probably play this pretty well because it, it would have probably had taken a lot of one money, but also a good story for her to bring, you know, to come back. And I think that there was, you know, obviously the Jane Foster Thor storyline in the comic books is a really good storyline. And I think it make it, it's a, it's it, to me, it's a it's a no brainer for her, you know, to pick that role. And there's a lot of great stuff in there to, to you know, to do. And I thought she she did a great job. I'll be honest. I, I thought she was great. Um, she I, I thought the energy she had as as, you know, Thor her you know, herself was awesome. Um, you could I thought there was a difference of the character, um, meaning like I thought that she took on a different personality when she became Thor, which I thought was a little bit important because. In the comic books, you know, if you don't read a lot of them, Thor, even regular Thor, just says the nay and talks very Shakespearean, if you will. And they don't really have that in the MCU, which I wish they did a little bit. I've always been a little bit bummed they never went a little more of that route, but whatever. Um, but in the, in Jane Foster's Thor in the comics, kind of the same thing. So it gives you a difference of the character a little bit. Like, you know, she almost like she's becoming a different person a little bit, right? So 
um, Natalie, I thought did a good job portraying that a little bit saying, Hey, I am not just, just Jane Foster. She's a little bit more on, you know, a little more boisterous and, and, you know, again, a lot like more Thor, her, her ex-boyfriend. So I, I like that. I like the fact that, that there was a transformation a little bit there. Um, and there was a difference. So there was lots of great stuff there with her. And I, again, I liked most of the things in this movie, but for me overall, and I, I, I told Sean, I'm going to use this analogy, but it felt like this pancake that I ate a couple weeks ago, right? It was like, I love pancakes and I'm eating it and right in the middle, I'm enjoying it. And all of a sudden it's like soggy because it's not cooked all the way. And I'm like, huh. It didn't taste terrible. It just was a little bit of a surprise, and it's kind of, huh? It just kind of, just kind of takes you out of it for a minute. And that's what I feel about this movie. I think Love and Thunder, for me anyway, it feels a little half baked in a lot of ways. Um, I think it feels like the script they used was, it, it could have used one more pass or another one. I don't know, at least two more three passes. It's what it feels like. A lot of things in the movie just didn't resonate for me. The humor wasn't, I liked a lot of the humor, but not all the humor. I thought things were a little over the top and a little too much maybe, but I don't know. It just, again, I didn't dislike it. I just didn't love it. Like, like you have it, you know, just like we, again, reverse of multiverse of madness, if you will. So, but there's a lot of great things that are great in this movie. And a lot of things that are, are left me shaking my head and not in a bad way, but it's kind of, huh, I wonder what they're going to do with this, which we'll talk about. But overall, it's not bad. I don't think it's great. I think it's it's not by any means the worst Thor movie. I think Dark World still has that well handled. And, you know, but I don't, I, I love Ragnarok way more than this movie. Uh, I know that some people may love this more and that's, and that's, it's, it's viable and I, I totally understand it. But um, yeah, this, I think Love and Thunder has lots of great stuff in it, but it just feels, my best way to describe it is it feels like a half-baked kind of ideas a little bit. Yeah, I think this one was uh, fully cooked to perfection. I love it. and uh, But that's just the way it is, right? When something works for you, it's because it resonated with you for, you know, for me anyway, for reasons that I will be happy to explain throughout this. But at the same time, I get why this may not feel developed enough or... It, for whatever reason, you know, diagnosing why it didn't resonate with you uh, in quite the way that it maybe it did for somebody who loved the movie, because that was what I was doing for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and that's just kind of the way that it works. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that this, uh, I, I love the script for this movie, I love the direction for this movie, and the humor, pretty much all of it worked for me. I don't think there was anything that uh, that just totally fell flat, and that's Maybe just my style and humor, of course, is just ridiculously subjective, as all of these things are, but even more so when it comes to humor. And there's just, I have no aversion whatsoever to Taika's absurdity, no matter how far he pushes it. And he does push it pretty far uh, in this movie, and it still worked for me. But I don't want to get into a whole, even though I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm going to gloss over it a little bit here, but it's just to get this out of the way. I don't really think at, at this point, um, at least for me, because I, I really love Thor Ragnarok, so it's not about ranking, is Thor Love and Thunder as good, better, or not quite as good as Thor Ragnarok? I haven't even decided or figured that out yet, because Ragnarok is a movie now that I've been watching for four and a half years, and re-watching and loving, and I feel like I'm going to be doing that with Thor Love and Thunder, but... Right now, it's still very early in the process, and I have to see about how my feelings uh, regarding this movie 
evolve over time or perhaps just stay the same over time. I do think that these movies have different strengths. I think there are a lot of similarities, of course, in the tone, but where I do think, and this doesn't necessarily make Love and Thunder a better overall movie, but there are certain parts where I think Thor Love and Thunder touches on it. It reaches certain levels emotionally that I came that I have come to expect from Taika's movies outside of the MCU that I didn't quite get, or at least not on the same level in Thor Ragnarok, or at least not as much of it in Thor Ragnarok as is delivered in this movie. I mean, there's that great elevator scene between Thor and Loki in Ragnarok, but when it comes to the emotional depth and the sincerity and how heartfelt all of it is, I, I feel like Thor uh, Love and Thunder is just a lot more upfront about that. And I love the whole way it explains it with feeling shitty and all of that. There's just so much about it that, uh, so much about this movie that resonated uh, with me, whether it was the humor or the heart. And of course, even, you know, the the other material, a lot of the the tougher topics that it deals with, of course, with Jane having cancer, and, and I'll get into that as we as we talk about it as it comes up when we go through the film. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of this that really stood out to me, um, and, and I and I was laughing at, but also moved by as I was watching mm-hmm. Love and Thunder. So, uh, and there's also just there's a lot of this that feels tailor made for me and my sensibilities. Uh, Taika and I, I'm sure, are very different people. Uh, but we definitely grew up loving a lot of the same stuff uh, with the the, <laughs> the way he presented things uh, in this movie. But I don't want to jump ahead because one of my favorite things was uh, after this prologue. Uh, but we do open with a prologue that is the origin of Gore the God Butcher. And this is slightly different from the comic books. There's not a lot of monologuing, but you don't get that in movies the way you do in comic books because it's all captions of Gore kind of remembering and and talking about his past and how he ultimately lost his faith. But it's very, very similar in that it does result in him having faith to the very end, and then he loses his daughter, and the gods weren't there, and he, of course, vowed to. And it was a little bit different because it wasn't just the necro sword; It was the, the, the black or whatever it was called in the comic books that ended up the all-black, I think, which also has a symbiote relationship that may or may not be explored at some point later on in the MCU. Um, if Venom gets back involved in the MCU after his, you know, brief vacation there from Spy- from Venom <laughs> Two and and uh, Let There Be Carnage and Spider Man No Way Home, I don't know if they're going to go into that territory. But anyway, Gore the God Butcher, the way it's presented in the movie, I liked it because it, it definitely had to have a. It, it, they definitely had to speed it up a little bit, and it had to be a little bit more of a condensed version of the backstory. And I think they sold it uh, well with the pain of his loss, and then going through. And where he really loses his faith is he finds his God, and his God just absolutely does not care uh, at all about the sacrifice, the faith of Gore's daughter, or Gore, or any of the people, um, an entire planet, as he says, like, your empire is already gone. Everybody who worshipped you has faded. They're gone. And he's just saying, well, there's always more people to worship. And then the Necrosword, which is already calling to Gore, then, of course, uh, makes itself available to Gore, and he takes his revenge on this god and makes a vow that all gods will die. This is why you get Christian Bale, because his performance throughout this movie, and one of the criticisms criticisms I would agree with of this movie, is it could have used even more story for Gore the God Butcher, more time with Gore the God Butcher, that part I totally agree with, 
But when you talk about getting the most out of the time you do have with this character, man, Christian Bale really does it. His performance sells every Mm. second of this character's experience. And while, again, I I hesitate to rank things immediately, I have, and, and I'm not ranking Gore the God Butcher in the pantheon of MCU villains just yet, uh, I, I can't help but feel like um, as this process, uh, as, it, as time goes by, I feel like my, my opinion of Gore the God Butcher is going to be very, very favorable amongst MCU antagonists. Yeah, I, I love Christian Bale, obviously. He's a phenomenal talent, and I thought his God Butcher was, was great overall. I, like, like the main criticism is we should have had more of them. And <clears throat> I, I don't know what you could do because I do feel you had to kind of get things moving a little bit. And, and I, and again, that stuff doesn't really bother me because again, this is not a, a mini series, right? This is not a Disney plus show. This is a live action film that only gets two and a half hours and every minute is crucial. And you have to, you know, that's kind of the, the medium, right? You have to use your time wisely and correctly. And if you do it the right way to do it, tell a great story in two and a half hours is, is not easy. And it, if you do it well, it's great. Right. Yeah. So, well, this movie only spent two hours though. And and I think when you know, these movies normally range from, I mean, we've actually seen the last couple of movies be closer to that two hour mark with love and thunder and multiverse of madness. And, and we were talking about this before we started recording. Like, I think there are reasons for that. I think there are practical financial reasons to not be able to afford as many shoot days or reshoot days, additional photography days. Making these movies is always expensive. Making these movies in the time of COVID is even more expensive. Um, And of course, when these movies were being shot, it was at a point where those costs were at their highest. So I think all of those things have impacted these movies. But, you know, we still look at the end result. And I I think the end result is you could have done something with Gore the God Butcher and without adding that much time to the movie. I mean, five more minutes to squeeze in another speech or monologue or conversation for Gore the God Butcher somewhere in this story, I think they could have found that spot. And I I do think that would have helped uh, alleviate what some people felt, you know, fill in some of the gaps of of what some people feel is is missing from his character or or his development Mm -hmm. in this film. Yeah, that, I totally agree with that. And with your whole idea of the whole, like, you know, the the symbiote roots that Gore in the comic books has and whatever, you you they establish that there is some kind of you know higher up or deity that's overseeing this this sword that's pushing him right, that's helping him. So <clears throat> you could have had him had a conversation with this evil thing. You don't have to name that evil thing, right? But you just had that conversation with him, maybe a little bit more like he does with the kids or whatever, you know, with himself, because to me, that's where I would have liked to have more, more bail in general. Um, the, what I'll say about this opening scene is I love everything with bail in it, but I'll, I'll say, I, I think one of the things that kind of threw me off immediately was this whole God thing. It was just so, it was a little abrasive for me. The God itself and everything is, is almost the, when you have like this really great actor and Christian Bale and he's suffering, he goes in and this God is just like, what? And, and again, I understand what they're trying to do and, and everything. I just, it just felt almost at it, like almost out of place. You could have done a similar thing and not have it be played. And it looked kind of, sur- it just, it, everything kind of threw me off. I, I can't even explain how I felt. And again, maybe I'm crazy, but when I was watching the scene, it just felt something felt off to me the whole time. And it just didn't it just didn't seem right. It just the tone of it seemed a little bit off. Again, what not uh, opposite of Bale. And 
I don't know. It just it just kind of seemed weird. So I don't mind the fast paceness and getting into it. I, I liked most of it. But when it got to the scene and he's talking to the god and he has to kill him and all that stuff, it, that's where it started kind of started saying to me like, this is different. Something seems off here. It didn't seem right. This is where my half cooked ideas. I, it just didn't. Something didn't seem right to me. And again, that's just to me. This whole opening start part of with the, with a god itself. Um, just seemed kind of weird to me, and I can't really the look of it, the the brightness, the the way the way he um, portrayed the character. Again, I'm it's all Taika stuff, and I and I get that's what he's going for. Is he wants to have this you know buff, big buffoon god showing that he doesn't care, and I get what what he's going for. I just felt like they could have toned it down a little bit and have it be more dramatic and fit Christian Bale's you know performance a little bit, because I, I I again it just felt like a little bit off to me of having this really great performance and then the guy's like playing as a joke and it just didn't come it didn't come across as well to me anyway so this is where things kind of got off on a weird spot for me with this movie i like the visual of it because i felt like it was really about the contrast right that right, he was right, in right. this bare desolate place and then all of a sudden finds himself in this lush vibrant space where things are alive and colorful and I mean, it very much represents the the visual idea of life and, and growth, and that's the exact opposite of, of what he just did. And and it is a truncated version of it, right? From the comic books, when Gore goes through his backstory, it's it's a longer descent, right? And I think where you get it in the movie is you get the tail end of it, right? The end of this journey, uh, continuing to pray to his God, and then you know just praying for not for himself, but for the life of his daughter. And then his daughter, of course, uh, passes away. So I, I like the representation of because of the juxtaposition of where Gore was just before this, where he's found himself, and the and the response to this. That to know that you couldn't even say his pray, you know, his prayers fell on deaf ears. Like they weren't being listened to at all. They weren't even you know, it was going to an inbox that nobody even answers, that nobody monitors whatsoever. And I think that and you know how are you going to set up so quickly this guy having a vengeful attitude toward gods? Like he has to meet like the worst, biggest jerk of a God that you could possibly find. And I think that's the part where it works for me. I think the, the only part of it that I kind of bumped up against was the whispers from the necro sword, like find eternity and all of that stuff. Cause I felt like that could have been a different scene, right. Of Gore discovering what he, the, the idea of him getting the necro sword yeah. and, and killing a God and, and vowing to kill all gods can be a different scene from another one that happens a little bit later where he discovers what he needs to do in order to carry out this pursuit. That could have been split up, and that's another scene five minutes long that gives you a chance to have more development for Gore the God Butcher. So I, I, I wouldn't call this a perfect opening, but I did like this prologue a lot. Most of that, of course, came from the performance of Christian Bale. What I really, really loved was the metal Marvel fanfare that we got next guitar that that guitar solo style version of Michael Giacchino's uh, wonderful Marvel Studios fanfare with the logo playing over it. I love that when I talk about um, movie this movie being made for me in a lot of ways and Taika and I liking a lot of the same things. Um, we certainly have some similar musical tastes, not that to say that, all of our that we like all the same music, but we certainly share the same admiration for Guns N' Roses and also a good guitar solo. Uh, I I loved this rendition of the Marvel fanfare. What did you think? 
<clears throat> it was uh, I, I, I liked the beginning of it. Uh, I'm like, oh, this is like a more of like a guitar driven version uh, at first because it was it hadn't gone to like full butt rock yet. And then when it went full butt rock, I went, oh, I forgot. It's this is like the GNR like movie. Yeah, Got it's it. more like, hair metal than boat rock, but uh, and, eh, same eh. difference in my opinion. Ah, all right, well, that, that's a whole other podcast unto <laughs> yeah, itself. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, we'll we'll update our heavy metal podcast uh, <laughs> later on. We'll start that one right after our football podcast. Um, I, I love it. I love it. So uh, the, the the next opening, or besides the prologue, the opening scene that we get with Thor. We he's gone through this journey where and we're getting the story to told to uh, the younglings by by Gore, where uh, I this whole flashback montage, though, of Thor being in all of these battles, but not really present in all of these battles and not really participating. First off, a lot of cool visuals, just a lot of crazy space battles for the Guardians of the Galaxy to be involved in. So that part of it, I really liked and, and had a lot of fun with. Um, and then also, yeah, Thor kind of stepping in only when absolutely needed and the whole thing of like waiting for somebody to say, Thor, like we need you to win this battle. And then, of course, Star-Lord steps in and, and says that. I also like that Stormbreaker, when he was planted, actually kind of grew because it just, it, I don't know, it's another yeah. reference to Groot being the Groot, source yeah. of Stormbreaker. So that part I, I really liked. That was a nice touch that they totally didn't have to do, but I appreciated it. Uh, that was very cool. And then when we get this battle between these like, eagle like owl looking things and uh king yakan is there to set, talk about it they need to protect their sacred temple so you hinted but the thing appears to be made out of glass so we know how that's about to go this was so over the top and so fun but it was so thor just being extra thor and i love that for all of the the tension and uh the contempt that star lord sometimes has and feels towards thor really just a lot of envy that Star-Lord feels toward Thor, that he's really into the hero speech for Thor. Like, he actually mouths the here and now, this ends here and now part of Thor's speech, uh, I thought was really cool. And then when you just ramp up and you play Welcome to the Jungle through a huge action set piece of Thor just obliterating all of these guys. And of course, you call it a, uh, he calls it a, a collective, you know, team effort at the end of it, which was really funny. But all of that from the music, the visuals of this sequence, I thought were just supercharged and super cool. And uh, of course, to cap it all off with the Van Damme splits uh, that Thor does at one point in the sequence, oh all of it, uh, it's absurd. It is so incredibly, insanely over the top, but I loved every single second of it as scored by GNR. Yeah, this is where uh, I liked most of this. Um, one of the things I liked about was Korg. I love the narration. Uh, that was a lot of fun. It, uh, diving into the ideas of, of Thor and, and you know what he's like, and, and again the whole mythology that he, you know he came in. I love you know embracing that and, and really playing playing with it you know to, to its full extent. I do also love the fact that with Thor joining the you know the Guardians of the Galaxy, it kind of brings in that. To me, like in the comic books, you can't always have you have to have a reason to have a team together, right? You can't just have a random group of people together because, like, again, it's you have to have like certain threats that kind of make sense, right? Because Thor's case, he's more powerful than all of them put together. So whatever they go do, he's just gonna do it by himself. They don't they don't even need to do anything. He can just do it for him, basically. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that Taika plays off of that. So you know, because again, you, you we leave Thor with the Guardians at the end of you know Endgame, 
But with with Taika kind of takes it and goes, yeah, that's how it happened. But really, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, and, and that, again, not really saying this, but well, you I think he's saying. saying more so not that it doesn't make sense or whatever, but I think he's just saying, how would this work? Well, the way that exactly. this works, and I, exactly. I think what he so what he does so smartly in this is the way it works is Thor's just kind of with the Guardians because he doesn't really know where else to go and what else to do. Like, this mm-hmm. is just kind of where he ended up. He had no path at the end of Endgame, so he hitched a ride with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and then he just never left because he didn't know where else to go. So the Guardians get in battles doing Guardians things, but as long as the Guardians are going to be okay and they're going to be able to save whoever needs to be saved, Thor doesn't really step in. But if it gets to the point where they need Thor, well, then they no longer need the Guardians because once Thor, once you press the Thor button, that's the only button you need to push and you win the battle. So it's like the Guardians can handle whatever they need to and whatever they would have been handling on their own. And then when they can't, thankfully, Thor is still there because he didn't know where else to go and he steps in and takes care of it. Yeah. <clears throat> And so I love all this. And I love the fact that kind of you're bringing the idea that him joining the Guardians just in, in essence, this doesn't really unless you're taking on bigger threats, like more cosmic threats, which is you know always a possibility, a possibility in the comic books they, when they had these, you know, these weird makeshift teams, they had to kind of tailor them to have them make sense. Right. So, like you said. It, it, to me, like I, it doesn't really make sense for him to join the Guardians in the MCU because, again, like we were given the exact proof of why, which I liked. It was good to see that. Uh, the the Guardians felt stiff to me a little bit. Again, this is where it just felt kind of it just they felt kind of off. Like something just seemed, didn't seem right. And, and again, I'm not. I I, I love I love the Guardians in the, in, the, in uh, Infinity War. I love them in that in, in Endgame, obviously. Well, but, I think the only one they really had interest in giving a, a real spot in this movie was Star Lord. Uh, I think no, right? Because Peter Quill gets the conversations with with Thor, and that works. But I agree with you that some of the other stuff just felt like the paint by numbers version of this is what Drax does. This is what Nebula does, you know, or this is how they are. This is what they say. And Mantis makes a fun, it gets to make a funny face and that's kind of it, you know, and, yeah, and, and she, Rocket and, and Groot are just kind of there. Too. Like, not no, as, she does because she doesn't make like, that's the joke with Mantis, right? She doesn't have the right. emotional experience of, of others. So she makes, uh, she doesn't make the the appropriate face or it makes an over-the-top version of whatever emotion right. she's trying to communicate. So it was, it's consistent with the character, but they, yeah. you know, you might also want to write things for her to say. Yeah, it, there was this, there was one time that she was kind of off to the side and I just for some reason was drawn to her face because it was like, it just, like you said, like I know she's trying to be exaggerating, but it just felt like a very like, eh, it just, I don't know. It was something weird. It something just seemed off with a lot of this stuff. And even with um, with Pratt, which again, I'm not like the world's biggest Pratt, uh, Pratt fan, but I do appreciate a lot of his Star-Lord stuff. And he just seemed off. It's something that seemed off with me. Besides Hemsworth, he carries everything. He's amazing in everything. But they their whole performance was just weird to me. And just I was kind of glad to see them go, to be quite honest. I'm like, it just, it just it didn't seem right. But... But regardless of that, yes, the GNR stuff, the action stuff was great. Um, the the aliens looked like computerized Muppets, basically. I'm not sure if you got a Muppet vibe, but that's what I did. And it was it almost seemed like, should this be live action? Like, should I see like uh, with strings over? You know, it was weird. Like that, good weird to me. It, it seemed like Muppets to me. And I, I'm just thinking to myself, why is Thor taking on a bunch of Muppets? I don't know. I, I loved Ragnarok in the very beginning when he's taking on Solter, you know, and 
he's doing all that. I, I love that in Ragnarok, and I love all the dead people he's fighting and everything. It, it kind of emulates that whole idea of like a, a really ridiculous opening, which I love. It just again, this was it just seemed like so over the top to me, and I love over the top things as much as anyone. But for some reason, this one was just. With with the splits thing, I was like, wow, they're really they're really going they're really going there today, aren't they? Um, and again, it wasn't bad. It just was like, huh. So when you have all these different things kind of combining, this is where to me I'm like, I'm not sure about this. It, you know, it it, just, it feels a little weird to me. But I, I did like the Muppet looking aliens that he was fighting, and I liked the obviously Hemsworth is great in this scene. But yeah, I was glad to see the Guardians go as quickly as they did because I'm like, eh, this is it just seemed off to me. Yeah, I didn't feel some of it, as I said, outside of Star-Lord, there was some of that I, I could see where it, it felt a little bit off. It, it wasn't so much a feeling off. It just didn't feel it was almost too on the nose, maybe for some of those characters rather than feeling off. But uh, I thought uh, Chris Pratt was was excellent in this. And I, I I really want more of Peter Quill and Thor in this stuff, because I, I think the comedic chemistry between Hemsworth and Pratt is is pretty great. And I think we saw it in Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah, it's great in Infinity and, War, for sure. Um, I don't think it, it didn't quite get to reach quite the same level in this one, um, but it was still, it still worked very, very well uh, as far as I was concerned. And and I also like the design. I mean, just, I don't know, the hairdo and the, the facial hair and the hair on his head, like for Star-Lord. I like the look that, and I like the costumes that Taika gave the Guardians. That was one thing. Uh, and Maya C. Rubio uh, was the uh, costume designer on this one. So I really thought the costumes on this uh, really popped. I, I like the designs of uh, uh, of the characters in, in Thor Love and Thunder. It just looked awesome. And of course, the Marvel Studios visual development department and, you know, Andy Park and all those guys, uh, I'm sure, did uh, did a lot on, you know, driving a lot of the looks on this. So, um, yeah, I, I like the design of, uh, of the Guardians on this. So while all of this is happening... Uh, we catch up with Jane, and I, I love that the movie, you know, the first visual of Jane, I, I think, is very, very striking. And, you know, we avoided talking about this part of the storyline as the on the podcast as it got closer to Love and Thunder. I know we talked about it in the earlier days of, of speculation about what might be going on with Jane Foster in this film. But, of course, uh, in the storyline in the comic books where she becomes the mighty Thor, it is at a point in Jane's life where she has cancer and uh, she is dying. And, and they do explain, they they definitely don't go into as much detail on how, how her being Thor impacts negatively her fight against cancer. We'll talk about that a, a little bit more as we get toward that revelation when it happens in the movie. But this storyline, I think if you didn't know the comic books and you weren't reading a lot of interviews or anything ahead of time where they were talking about this storyline because it wasn't really part of the marketing. It was just Jane's Thor now, and she's got the hammer now, and that's it. And so you didn't necessarily know or, or have a hint as to what was going to be going on with this character. I'd be interested to know how this impacted people who had no idea that this was coming, that the first time you see her, she's coming out of an MRI machine, and then it cuts to her receiving chemotherapy and it is a very striking visual because you don't expect that for this character. And, and certainly, I know uh, I'm certainly not the only one. I think most of us have had uh, the, the great misfortune at some point in our lives to have it be touched, to have been touched by cancer, whether it's those, uh, those who've had it or, like me, those who've lost people to it or been there for people who had to go through it, um, even if they survived. And, uh, you know, of course, get into more of that as, as we go on. 
Um, but that visual was very, very striking. And I think that is where this movie did a very good job of <clears throat> giving you all the fun that you expect. And, and it, it is that juxtaposition. It's from all of the, the crazy, over-the-top action and comedy of the of what you just saw Thor doing to you know Jane kind of on her own for a few seconds before you see having a conversation with the person sitting next to her while she's receiving chemo and then Darcy shows up those shots you know cutting to back and from one scene to the next I thought that was very impactful at least uh, it certainly impacted me and I knew it was coming not that I knew that that was how it was shot or that was how it would be revealed but even the way knowing that that was going to be part of the story the way they got to it, uh, I thought was impactful. But then also just showing Jane's response to it. And I think what this movie does a beautiful job of is, you know, in, in terms of that battle with cancer is, you know, we don't get to choose how we die. We don't get to choose how much time we have, but we do get to choose how we live and what we do with the time that we have. And that's the part about Jane Foster's story that was always so inspiring in the comic books. And that's what I found uh, an equal amount of uh, inspiration here. And just looking at this, right? Like she's there with uh, receiving her chemotherapy, sees that the kid next to her is reading her book and then identifies herself. And when he's struggling with the Einstein Rosen bridge, she explains it to him while referencing and even visually referencing with the way she uh, sets it up with folding the page in half and sticking the pen through it of uh, Event Horizon and Interstellar and giving him homework to watch those movies because they explain it really well. All of that I thought was great. And then just the conversation with Darcy, like Jane at this point hasn't told very many people that this is what she's going through because she doesn't want people to look at or treat her any differently. Um, all of that I, I thought was just very impactful. And Natalie Portman's performance was so good. And also just great to see Kat Dennings as Darcy. And I, I love that her return was already kind of set up by her being part of WandaVision. I, I like that this wasn't the first time we saw her after Thor the Dark World. I like that she had already been back, especially because we only get her in this scene. We don't see her again uh, in the film after this, but that that friendship is still there and also just reinforcing how close Darcy and Jane are because not very many people know Darcy is, is one of the few and she's also the, the one who is there for Jane uh, in this moment, giving her a bunch of food that Jane obviously can't eat while she's battling cancer, but nonetheless, it's the gesture of just wanting to do something to provide some comfort, but it's only you can only go so far for the person who actually has to fight that battle. Yeah, this is this is where I would say Natalie Portman, and I really like the fact that she's you know, she came back for this um, particular storyline. <clears throat> this is I'm glad they kept they kept things under wraps, and we know we try to keep that pretty under wraps too, out of respect for people who don't want to read the comics, which is totally cool. And again, I, I think they did a good job, they being Marvel, did a good job of not really showcasing why Jane's in it. And I think showing it right off the bat will definitely had an impact on people, to be honest. And I think this to me is where the movie really, is, obviously it rests and it lives and dies, um, you know, no pun intended, honestly, uh, but like lives and dies by this whole storyline. And I think to me, this is where it saves the movie. Um, to me, this is where I think the Taika, <clears throat> Uh, Hemsworth and Portman all did a great job of bringing the storyline out, given the you know everything under the circumstance circumstances they were given with the script and the time frame and everything. 
Um, I love all these scenes. Um, they all it very much did. I, th- I think they did. They did a good job giving us what we needed quickly because again, this is this is a shorter movie, not the longest movie in the world by any means, and they needed to get things done fast. And I thought they did a good job of showing us what um, Jane's going through, and what she's bringing her friends through, and how she's dealing with it. Uh, again, it gets you invested immediately and, and reintroduces you to the character in a good way, where you're like, oh man. Oh yeah, Jane's back, and oh man, she's sick. Oh crap! So you automatically know how is this tied to Molnir and Thor and everything. And even as a fan like myself, who knew what happened last time with the whole really long, complicated history of Thor's hammer of the, of the original Sin storyline, um, I had no idea how they're going to tie things together. So this was kind of a little bit of a key of where they're going to go to have her become Thor, right? A little, they kind of start showing you the signs of that. So. It was it was cool. I, I liked this, and, and this, and I was to me, I was the, probably the most nervous about this whole aspect of the of the movie because I'm not always the biggest fan of Portman. So when she, I thought, was started coming off strong immediately, it made me feel a little bit better because at this point in the movie, I, I was a little nervous because things were a little bit in my face. They weren't really hitting it for me, and this is where it started settling down a little bit for me, where I said, okay. Movie's not going to be a complete train wreck for me because Portman's actually doing a good job here, holding her own, and I'm invested in Jane's character. So I like all all the stuff too. Yeah, I think this was the emotional key to this movie, and, and it was certainly the storyline that I was counting on the most in terms of this movie having a lot of heart. I mean, I, I think I teased it a, a little bit in previous podcasts talking about there's there's this whole other element, this whole other storyline that they're not teasing in the marketing that really has a chance to be uh, truly impactful and, and resonate with a lot of people. And and it was a storyline that, uh, you know, again, I, w- I was counting on this to be a, a huge part of what would carry this movie and elevate this story. And I think they really did such a great job of portraying it in this instance. And of course, as we go on uh, throughout this movie. And, you know, one of the things that Jane is doing, of course, is searching for a cure. And this is where there is a a, it diverges from the source material in another way here. In the comic books, Jane intentionally does not want Asgardian treatments or anything like that. She just wants whatever, whatever can be provided on Earth. That's what she wants. She doesn't want anything to save her life that another human being wouldn't have access to. I don't necessarily think Jane has to make that same choice in the movie. If you uh, if you're a lover of that storyline and you don't like that Jane wasn't going about this the same way, I get it. Um, I think it's fine that Jane Foster is, is doing whatever she can to try and and save her life, and that's what she's doing. And you know she's trying initially though to go through everything that is Earthbound, right? And she's not even necessarily looking to play the space Viking card, uh, as Darcy describes it. And we see uh, Eric Selvig has been looped into this, and he's been trying to help, but he can't find uh, a solution for Jane and just saying that he's sorry and there for her if she needs to talk. And then Jane looks at some Norse mythology books, and she decides to take a shot. And as she also describes, kind of heard the hammer calling to her. So Jane visits New Asgard, and uh, that's where she will find the pieces of Mjolnir. But before Jane finds that, we get to see what's going on in the latest uh, chapter of Asgardian Theater, featuring the return of, what is that, Luke Hemsworth, Chris's brother who plays Thor, Sam Neill, 
uh, as Odin and Matt Damon as Loki. Uh, and of course, the theatrical debut of Melissa McCarthy as Hela, as they uh, recount that uh, that chapter of Thor Ragnarok where Odin perished and uh, Hela showed up. Sam Neill, by the way, crawling away as the god dust blows. Uh, amazing visual. I totally cracked up for that. Also, the spray bottle that Matt Damon uses to get his tears as Loki. I love these stupid, absurd little plays that uh, they put on for Asgard to uh, just retelling its history to the Asgardian people. It's so cheesy. It's so ridiculous. I really, really wish, because this happened a long time ago, but the Melissa McCarthy Hella cameo got spoiled for me a long time ago. It was just somewhere there in the social media feeds, and I was uh, I was bummed that uh, that it got spoiled. But thankfully, enough time had gone by that I mostly forgot about it until like the portal opened up and I knew Hella was about to come through. But Melissa McCarthy was uh, was great in this spot anyway uh, and made the most of it, so it didn't really matter that I knew it was coming. And her husband is also there as the uh, the stage director for uh, the play as they're taking a bow at the end. Uh, but Paul, what did you think of the the new Asgard Theater Company? I, I liked it. Uh, it. I felt like it went a little too long, in my opinion. But again, that's just me. It's it's whatever. But this, I love the last one too. I like this one. Again, this is where again I felt like they could have cut this out, not out, but a little bit shorter. Get a little bit more. Get a little the pace going a little bit. But again. I just it's, it's a taste thing. I liked it. I just wish it was a little bit more crisper as far as like or not crisper, but uh, a little faster. I mean, get, get the pace up a little bit. But that's just me. Yeah, I was fine with the length of it because I was laughing the entire time. And that's Ben Falcone or Falcone, who is the uh, Melissa McCarthy's husband, who was there as the Asgardian stage manager. Uh, all of that was awesome. But what was even more awesome was the official MCU in-story MCU debut of Daryl, Thor's roommate from the Team Thor and then eventually uh, Team Daryl shorts um, that Marvel did. I mean, the very first one, I remember they played it at San Diego Comic-Con and it was just incredible. I think that was in 2016, if I'm remembering the year correctly, but it was just it was unbelievable. And I loved those and I loved Daly Pearson, who, of course, plays Daryl. And, you know, the Team Thor shorts and their status as canon is kind of questionable. But um, but uh, nevertheless, here he is for sure. There's Daryl. Maybe they're even uh, more firmly canon now that Daryl shows up here. But I, I love seeing Daly Pearson there as he's giving the, the history of Mjolnir. He shows up again, actually, and Valkyrie is, is talking to him where they're making plans of what needs to happen after the kids are taken by Gore. And his name is actually spoken aloud as Daryl, so it's not just the name tag in this sequence where he's talking about Mjolnir. But uh, Jane is there, and we see some electricity in the, through going through the hammer, or the pieces of the hammer. We see some thunderous clouds rolling in, and then that's kind of all we get. And so we cut away until we eventually see Jane as the mighty Thor uh, in a battle on New Asgard. So... Um, Go ahead and talk about this now. And, and I know we're skipping a little bit, but when you talk about wanting more of something, Paul, I, I do wonder if you if you wanted more for the origin of the Mighty Thor. Like, does it work for you as it's presented? Or do you feel there should have been something in between hmm. 
the hammer coming together or starting to come together and then, you know, cut to Jane as the mighty Thor. I think it works better the way that they've done it here because I I think it Mm -hmm. does a better job of recreating a little bit for as much as they want to do it. The arrival of the mighty Thor in the comic books and the way they do in the MCU, it's still very, very different. Like there's no... Uh, it's it's an entire story arc for Thor to figure out that Jane is the mighty Thor in the comic books, whereas it's like five seconds in that Jane is like, yeah, here's who I am. It's me. So that part is very different. <laughs> but um, right. I, I think it works this way because I don't think you want an in-between step because I think you want to you want to set it up, but then still maximize the arrival of uh, Jane as the mighty Thor. So I was fine with this the way that it was presented, but I know there were some people who felt like, Maybe we should have got a step in between. I like it as is. What did you think? You know, I actually like this. I like the fact I – I thought they handled Jane pretty well for the most part. I, you know, there, there's a couple things you could have punched up. I thought made it a little stronger. Overall, again, in the time frame that you're given, I thought they did a pretty good job. I like the idea you don't really see – it all come together before our eyes. You can, you, you know, it's coming. We know the trailers. We've seen them, right? We don't need to have the scene. The, I don't need a PowerPoint presentation showing me how she becomes Thor right in front of me. You know, I can, I can, I don't mind a little bit of exposition, like a, a little blend of both, if you will, right? Give me some visual, which they did. She goes there, and you see them, the parts move, and then next time you see her, she's there. I like, I, I don't mind it. You kind of have to get things rolling a little bit because there's a lot of stuff they do in this movie to kind of – there's a lot of things that are they're moving in this movie, obviously. So <clears throat> to me, you knew it's coming. It was fine. I thought I, – I, it worked for me. Do I think they could have done a little bit more for other people? Probably. But it worked fine for me. I thought it was, it was, it, it was, it was good. It was a good kind of drama and, and – uh, I thought a good entrance for the character, the way they used it in the movie. So, um, especially the fact that, that Valkyrie knew who she was already. So right. it all worked. That all worked for me. I, I thought it was fine, but I could see where other people would have a little more. Yeah. They need a little more time too. And we do time. too, right? I, I think that's right. the other part of it is everybody goes into this movie knowing that Jane is the mighty Thor, and they weren't going to try to keep a lid on this the way they did with. Bucky is the Winter Soldier for Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Like, this was never going to really be much of a surprise reveal for anyone. I think the surprise is in everything that Jane is actually going through in this story. So obviously not more sad surprise than an exciting, thrilling surprise or whatever it may be. So although I guess finding out that Bucky is the Winter Soldier is also kind of sad. But um, yes. Yeah, I, I like the way that they did it here, and I, I don't really feel like anything is missing because I, I feel like it gets kind of explained. Even the relationship between Jane and Mjolnir ends up getting explained and how it was started by Thor when they go through kind of the, the flashback rom-com montage of Thor and Jane's relationship mm-hmm. later on. But as I said, I was I was skipping ahead a little bit there because after we cut away from those thunderclouds and you know Mjolnir starting to come back together, Thor is uh, presented with a gift from King Yakan. It is the goats, Tooth Grinder, and Tooth Nasher, who are just screaming, which I don't... Were they screaming in the comic books? You can't hear in the comic books. I'm trying to remember if they had screaming word (laughs) bubbles in the comic books. I don't recall. Um, But it was obviously done for for laughs here, and it worked. I thought it was for me anyway, but if this was a joke that didn't work for you and you just found it annoying... I would totally understand that because it certainly teeters on that, but I found it funny. And when we talk about uh, just the Guardians, this is where I felt like the Guardians were just being 
extra guardians because only Star Lord really got uh, to have a true scene or scenes with Thor. Um, like Nebula just instantly wants to kill the goats, which is a very Nebula thing. And then Mantis just in support of Nebula makes uh, a funny face and, and everything. But uh, so that part was all it was fine. It wasn't bad. It was just fine. It was what it was. Um, but I, I really did like the conversation between Star-Lord and, and Thor as they're going through these distress calls and they figure out there's too many for everybody to answer. They have to split up. So Thor is going to go figure out what's going on with Sif since she was part of those distress calls. And the parting conversation, I was of two minds about this because I love the scene, but at the same time, I don't like when you introduce an urgent situation and then don't have characters act with urgency. That is a, a little bit of a pet peeve. So... When I see a video of Sif bleeding and saying she needs help, then my expectation is Thor is going to immediately take off and go to Sif's aid. So I think it's just an out-of-order thing. I, I think this conversation between Star-Lord and Thor, I know it's because they've decided to part ways and they're having this last moment, but I think you can have this and then that they need to split up because there's a lot of distress calls but they don't actually see what the distress calls are. Or Thor doesn't see that it's Sif or whatever it may be. Or even if it's not Sif, have them review the distress calls after because when there's this much chaos going on, like, and I, I suppose you could say from Thor's perspective, this much chaos is going on all the time. So he still needs to have these moments and that's fair. But when you elevate it by having it with somebody he's got a personal connection to with Sif, I would have changed the order of this. Have, give him the heart to heart with Star-Lord and then have him learn that Sif is in trouble and he takes off to go find her. But aside from that uh, reordering that I would have preferred, the conversation between Star-Lord and, uh, and Thor, I really like the way, and especially because it comes from Star-Lord. When Star-Lord is the one who explains to Thor the concept of feeling shitty about somebody, and that's part of what, what love is, because of what you feel is so strong, it's so intense, that that strength, that intensity on its own can feel shitty because it introduces the anxiety that it will go away or it's the feeling of missing that person if they're gone. And we certainly know that Star-Lord is feeling a lot of that with respect to Gamora and all of these different aspects of it. I think that's Taika really paying tribute to something that James Gunn established with Star-Lord when he talked about this is our chance to do what to give a shit back in the you know bunch of jackasses standing in a circle scene in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, the way Star-Lord can phrase certain things and distill it down into just this basic concept and even crude concept and crude phrasing, that is still very, very true and, very wor and, and works and resonates with Thor as he explains uh, later on as he's explaining what uh, Star-Lord has uh, explained to him uh, in Thor's conversation with Jane later I, I really love that. But it also, I think it's it's showing what Thor has been pretending he has with the Guardians. And that's not to say they don't get along and they're not good buddies and pals and all of that stuff. But he's been using the Guardians to, and probably others as well, to try and fill a void instead of actually dealing with some of the issues that he's had um, and the connections that he's lost with the people that he loved. Where And so we get that for him, but also it's accomplishing this other thing, which is not what this movie is about, but it does further the journey for these characters as they go towards volume three, but just showing Star-Lord and his connection to the Guardians and looking at them, you know, looking to the eyes of the people you love, and he's looking at all of his Guardians teammates, 
and the way all of that started with these characters just not caring about each other and deceit, trying to deceive each other and, and whatever else to what that's grown into and having that represented in the way Star-Lord talks about and, and looks about and looks at his friends or now his family. Uh, I thought all of that was very well done. Yeah, this scene w- was fine for me. I don't really have much to say. I I thought it was it was overly uh, not complicated, but like the whole the whole shitty thing was. Uh, I was like, okay, it's fine. I don't know. I again, the Guardian stuff did, just did not ring true to me at all, and I just I just wanted to get get the hell out of here. So seeing them go, I did see seeing Sif like that. Like I'm a Sif fan. Like I like Sif. Yeah, and it bummed me out. Like I feel like she's got the short end of the stick a little bit um in these movies because she's actually in the comics and i think even in the film i think the first one she's great in that movie to be honest i i legitimately love sif in that movie she's Um, also underrated in thor the dark world like i I think that in the scenes that she has where like her love for thor is very very clear um and not just that but also loving thor but also at the same time not feeling possessive about it or, you know, being having animosity toward Jane just because that's the woman uh, that Thor has fallen in love with. Like, mm-hmm. I think Sif has been a really good character. And I like that she finally got like a proper comic book look <laughs> in this one. Uh, Word. That was really cool. Um, and yeah, I well, look, she got shorted in. I mean, she was just fl- plain excluded from Ragnarok, but that's not entirely Taika's fault or Marvel's fault. She had a full-time job. She was starring in Blindspot, you know, a 22 episode Mm -hmm. job on, on NBC at the time. Um, And so, yeah, when you have that on your schedule, it's a huge issue for a movie to try and and work around because when you headline a show like that, that show is in what's called first position. So that means they get dibs on your schedule before anyone or anything else. And so I, I, I believe that Sif, if there was a, a way to work, I mean, I guess you could say there's always a way to work it out. Always. A, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I understand why it didn't happen. And truthfully, seeing as how the Warriors three were just quickly dispatched in Thor Ragnarok, Sif was probably, or Jamie Alexander was probably better off not being in That's Ragnarok. Fair. That's why she's alive to at least have a part in this movie that could maybe grow into something else. Because frankly, I jumping way ahead, but this series Mm -hmm. clear or this movie, that's why I'm saying series. There's a slip. This clearly sets up a new Asgard Disney plus series. Like, and Mm -hmm. you know, now that blind spot is over, Jamie Alexander is free to be a part of that. And and hopefully, you know, co-starring with Tessa Thompson. Yeah. And I think great, great point about her costume actually getting a full realistic or real, uh, kind of live action version of the costume that I think that makes her a really awesome looking character in the comic books. And I think the fact that they didn't kill her off, which I was very happy about, it's just it's just bummer because I'm like, man, the costume looks cool. Like I think she's a good actress, and yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential there because she also was in that I think one of the better Agents of Shield episodes when she took on Lorelai and and that you know when she showed up in that one episode, so that was cool too. I mean, I I think she's to me she was an she is a underutilized character in both the comics and the movies to be honest, and so. Um, I know she was in a little bit of her own series back in like the early, like mid two thousands, whatever that was. And then right after 2010, but yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of great stuff in there with, with this, with this character. And I think that I'm glad they spared her. I was a little worried that she was going to die, but when they didn't, I, w- I was happy about that at least. Yeah. And the way she didn't die was 
hilarious, hilarious. when they're that, talking. That was good. Yeah. yeah, that she's ready to die in battle and and go proceed to Valhalla, and Thor tells her how well you didn't actually, you know, technically didn't die in battle because here you are, battle's over, and here you are still alive. Hopefully, your arm is in Valhalla because she's lost an arm. Oh uh, my god, I died. Yeah, I died. That, that was, was hilarious, and and also, I mean, the the trailers already gave it away, but that visual of Falagar, the god who'd been slayed by Gore, the God Butcher ripped right out of the comic books as yeah. we uh, as we talked about when we uh, did that uh, trailer reaction but yeah that visual was just uh, was beautiful and then yeah the scene with Sif I I guess there's not really much room for her elsewhere in this movie but I'm glad that she's very clearly alive and, and in the mix in new Asgard uh, to give that character hopefully some sort of future here uh, in the MCU. But we do proceed to New Asgard in the plot, and that is because New Asgard is next on Gore's list of targets, and this is what allows Thor to meet the mighty Thor. And we already talked about the transition of uh, Hammer coming together, and then boom, here's Jane as the mighty Thor. And you know, I love the the setup for that of like who's the new guy or whatever, and Valkyrie's like, you're gonna love that one. And of course, it ends up being uh, it ends up being Jane. But there's a lot of this that I felt like very quickly matched the spirit of the comic books. There's a great, great sequence in the comic books that I, I wouldn't say they nailed it here. I, I think they echo it a little bit, but that's also totally me having read the comic book, uh, projecting this onto the movie because it's not communicated at all. But I guess non-verbally is communicated. But there's a great sequence in Jason Aaron's run with uh, Jane Foster's Thor, where Thor is just thinking to himself as he's watching Mjolnir that he was never able to wield Mjolnir quite like that. The way that hammer is flying is not in a way that it ever flew for him uh, based on this new Thor, whose identity he does not yet know. And the way they, I think, sort of communicate that and, and pay slight homage to that in this, and it's a much more literal difference, right? Because this time now the hammer can actually fly in different pieces, but it's Thor hearing the hammer and seeing it fly. And he is, thanks to uh, Hemsworth's performance, you see he is legitimately amazed and impressed by the way this is happening. And this is a whole new way, including, again, a very literal different function of the hammer since it can now fly, <laughs> fly out in pieces. But he is genuinely impressed by what he's seeing. And then when he thinks Mjolnir is going to come back to him, no, it uh, goes back into the hands of this new Thor, who is Jane Foster. But I also love that Thor's ego, he can't help it, right? He sees this new Thor, and this new Thor is wielding Mjolnir, his old hammer, and his response is, well, I'm going to get my, I'm going to give myself a costume makeover, and I'm going to give myself a helmet, because this Thor has a helmet, and then when it looks like, you know, the wings on the helmet are not high enough, I'm going to make them higher because he's got like wing envy for the helmet. All of that I, I thought was really, really funny. And also character design for these uh, for well, Thor has a lot of Thor, Thor has a few different looks in this movie, and I think they all look awesome. But then mm -hmm. the the design of Thor's, you know, blue and gold armor is just a plus, uh, as is the mighty Thor these costumes are, are just, they're fantastic. These are like, rip them right off the page and slap them on screen, and they found a way to do it, and they just, they look gorgeous. <clears throat> yeah, I love all these costumes. I think uh, Jane Foster's Thor design is maybe one of the best 
uh, costumes we've gotten in the MCU. It's as literal of a translation mm-hmm. as I think we've seen. It's so good. And I and cu- again, kudos to Natalie, dude. I I thought the fact that she actually wore it majority of the time she was Thor was impressive because yes, we all some know- of those times it looks like it's CG and the kind of comes it's off fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I'm, again, like, but again, she has to agree to that, right? I mean, she can't. I mean, I'm. Oh yeah. I'm I mean, for that to happen, that's dots on her face and and the whole deal. <laughs> yeah. So I feel, and again, I, I like that. I like the fact when 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 actors are not afraid to say, "Hey, you know what? I don't mind you covering my face." And some actors don't want that. They don't like that. It's a preference thing a lot of the times. And you know, I. Hemsworth, it seems like he's a little more against it. The, you know, he did a little bit more in Ragnarok, and I, I thought we'd get a little more in this. I loved seeing how ridiculously uh, ri- this ridiculous this costume was from that uh, the the blue and gold costume. That again, that's not more. That's a more of an interpretation of a of the original Walt Simonson uh, look that he did. Um, I liked it a lot. It's it's really really ridiculous in a good way. But it just bums me out because he never wears it. I'm like, ah, he just throws it away. And I'm like, God damn it. You know, I mean, I, he makes a comment like, oh, this thing's so big. Or, you know, it was, again, it was funny. But yeah, I wish he would have at least thrown it back on while he was in I battle. Know, one time, one time. But that being said, I thought all the costumes were really good, especially Jane Foster's Thor, man. I, I thought James was one in particular. We're going to save the very end, which, yeah, we'll save the very end for the yeah, the post credit scene. But but I, I thought Jane Foster's uh, costume was phenomenal and entrance was great. I thought, yeah, this is to me where the movie started really kicking into a, a different gear for me. And I started enjoying it a lot more once we saw Jane Foster kind of show up and start doing her thing with the, with the Thor hammer and everything, which mm-hmm. I thought was brilliant. I love this stuff. Um, you know, really quickly, I haven't really touched on it too much. But uh, at this point, you know, and throughout the film, I started thinking like, Man, they really I feel like Tessa Thompson really did not get a lot in this movie and a little bit of a bummer because she's so good in riding a rock and she's fine in this movie. She's not bad by any means, but it just feels like she again, it feels like could they just cut her out completely and and they could have just done without it and focus more on, on Thor and Jane's relationship and maybe more on Jane. It's possible. I, again, she wasn't bad in this. I thought that I, it just felt like she was a little bit of an add on to me, which is a little bit of a bummer because I thought she was so good in riding a rock. Again, that's just my opinion. And it just felt like it could have been a little, done either take her out completely or give her a little bit more. I don't know what the answer would have been. But it just felt like, again, half-baked a little bit in this movie for her. I think she did a great job doing the things that we love yes. and are so awesome about Valkyrie, right? Because, I mean, whether it's the the Old Spice ad uh, when we first cut that to New Asgard or when, you know, she just has these great action moments. And I certainly love that, you know, her relationship with Jane was really cool and, you know, kind of a, a keeper of Jane's secret, just being there for her, I thought was really awesome and kind of facilitating the romantic reunion of Thor and Jane and trying to help rekindle that romance a little bit and getting these characters to even think about it and consider it. All of that I thought was really great. And the great scene with Korg later on where he kind of sums up why she does what she does and the, because of the people that she has lost and, and everything but it still felt like a lot of that was very, very fast, and it, it didn't feel like Valkyrie had her own enough of her own emotional stakes in the story, and it felt a lot more like she was there in service of the emotional stakes for Thor and Jane. And I did feel like this movie was 
going to graduate to another thing with Valkyrie where it was going to, she was really going to have more of her own storyline in this. And I didn't feel like she totally did. Um, or if she did, it wasn't, it didn't get as much time or attention as, uh, as it, as it deserved. And so I, I think that's a, a very valid criticism and it's certainly, but if nothing else, right, it leaves, uh, it, it leaves an opening for something else. It, it leaves a hole to be filled by something else, whether that's another movie or a Disney Plus series. Uh, but certainly, you know, Valkyrie, I think, could have been given. I mean, everything we got from her was great. It just could have been yeah. and, and arguably should have been uh, should have been more. But there's a lot of cool visuals in the shadow monster thing. Like, I love the, you know, when Thor sees Mjolnir and, and like the the first time he gets a clear look at it is when it comes through the back of the head of this uh, shadow monster which in some ways, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think this was the intent, but it reminded me of the huge, uh, you know, ice uh, frost giant monster, the, you know, the that we saw in the very first Thor movie. And again, in Thor the Dark World, the one where Thor flew through like its mouth and out the back of its head and killing it like that. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me of that visual um, in this really cool, but, you know, CG violent sort of way. Um, that part uh, I thought was great. And also... We talk about Christian Bale because this is the next time we get him in action as he is uh, as he's fighting, and there's a lot of great stuff there in in his performance in the battle with Thor. Again, it, it's just, it's just he can't reveal too much because you need to leave things for Thor and, and Valkyrie and, and Mighty Thor to discover about him and what he wants. Um, but yeah, there was this was a moment where it felt like if we had had another scene with Gore between the prologue and this where he actually got to kind of talk out more of his journey it would have benefited because it almost it's, he gets his prologue to define his mission and then it's just throwing him into the action so that's a part where i do kind of agree to some extent even if it didn't detract from the film as much for me as it maybe did for others of where you know, there could have been more with gore the god butcher but christian bale was was great and very menacing i thought uh, in this sequence and then when it looks like the battle is is won for the Asgardians because Gore is not about to take on Thor, the mighty Thor, and Valkyrie all at once, or at least not here, not yet, then the Shadow Monsters go and they take all of the uh, all of the Asgardian kids. Um, but also what we got was as soon as uh, Jane reveals that she is indeed the mighty Thor, we get this flashback montage for the romance between Thor and Jane, and I really love that Taika went back and covered this because it it fills in an essential plot question of like why does Mjolnir I mean I don't I have no problem believing that Jane Foster is just worthy but it's not the same thing as her just being able to pick up the hammer. The hammer is in pieces and in theory dead, right? Cuz even Thor couldn't necessarily revive mm-hmm. it as far as we're to understand in the MCU. So there had to be something else that would bring it together and bring it back together. And the whole idea that at one point Thor is telling Mjolnir that uh, that Mjolnir always needs to protect Jane, um, and maybe that being what dr- that mission being what drove Mjolnir, because there's some sentience right involved in these hammers, as is, as is established certainly in this movie um, and relied on uh, for a lot of humor in this movie. Uh, I was I liked that setup, but more important than that, though, because I mean that's a, a simple plot question of of why Jane and, and why does why does she is she able to bring the hammer back? 
it's just going through that relationship because it was very dismissive. And that was a, a lot of what Ragnarok did. It had a very dismissive attitude, I think, to its detriment in some ways, even though I still love the movie, but a very dismissive attitude toward a lot of what happened in the first two Thor movies, including the romance between Thor and Jane, which I have always felt and, and will always feel uh, is just underrated in MCU and not just the MCU, but superhero movie romances, blockbuster movie romances. I've always thought the Thor and Jane relationship worked very, very well, but it was at its best in this movie. And a lot of that was this flashback that just allowed them to have these very simple, very basic, very human relationship moments, Mm -hmm. including the slow, gradual deterioration of a relationship and the way that it portrayed that. And it's doing a lot in a very short amount of time, but it does it in a way that feels real, that makes sense, even against this crazy superhero backdrop of it. So, uh, yeah, before we moved on to the, the whole plot of got to save the Asgardian kids, uh, taking the time to do that uh, rom-com flashback montage, I thought was a really smart choice. And, and even even smarter than that was how it was how it was actually executed. Yeah, I, I all the narration stuff that the Taika does as Korg, I thought was really good. Uh, I, I, a perfect blend to kind of give the audience what they need and kind of a refresher um, for multiple things. I actually really liked the reason why she's Thor because I was just thinking about that for a minute. You know, how are they going to do this? Because, and again, the comic books, you know, like you said, you already brought the, the big difference. This made sense to me. It makes sense. And I like the fact that that promise of Thor, the promise of love, of caring for someone, the whole kind of going back to that whole shitty comment, right? About how you want someone to feel shitty for it, it kind of goes back to that, right? Like it's, it's that undying love and, and affection you have for that person. And you, and you, 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 that promise that he made to Molnir was, you know, it was, it was like, it's it almost, it was honoring it. And I love, I love the fact that that kind of keeps a kind of a, a metaphor for Thor's love for Jane, right? It's always there, even in pieces, it, it gets back together. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of great uh, imagery with that, which I like. And I thought it was, again, I, I kind of thought it was a little, it was a little clever, to be honest. I mean, how you could have done so many different ways with it, but it made sense. And that as, so as soon as Jane is internally, like physically in danger, which in, within her own body, that's when Molnir gets to, I, I don't know. I love that. I thought it was really cool. And I thought it was really well done and well written how they did that. And again, you have a short amount of time to, to tell these things. So you have to do it in a really you know creative way. I thought Taika, this is one of the, again, the strongest points of these movies are with Jane. And I thought this is where Taika really shined. And I thought it was great. And I love the origin of, of this, this Thor character. And yeah, I, I thought I, I, it's much different, but I thought it's an appropriate thing for the MCU 100%. Yeah. And I think they actually expanded on it a little bit later on in the movie when the great scene where Thor explains that Jane was the one who made him worthy, you know, going back to, of course, the story mm. that we saw in the first Thor film. And so, the person who made Thor worthy is also probably pretty worthy in their own right. And, um, and then of course, you know, the, the need, the need to protect her and, and whatever else it was playing a factor into it. But yeah, there's a lot of it that really, that, that just worked very well. And the, you talking about, you know, the, the narration with Korg and how well that worked. I was thinking from a romance perspective, I know we talked about the his history with the guardians, but they also went through his romantic history at that point, uh, which I thought was really awesome. Right. Like the whole loving a wolf woman on a woman wolf. And 
Actually, oh my God. I only know because of IMDb, and I, I didn't notice this in the credits uh, as I was watching the movie, but the wolf woman was Elsa Pataki, who is Chris Hemsworth's real-life wife. So she finally got to have a cameo. Uh, she is an actor in her own right, but she find, she has not been in the MCU up until now, unless maybe she has, maybe she's got another cameo uh, somewhere else in another Thor movie that I forgot about. But um, anyway, that was a really cool uh, little touch there. But yeah, the, the rom-com uh, montage was uh, was awesome. And then, uh, so now we know that Gore has taken the kids. We don't totally know why just yet, um, but it's time to go and find him. But in the aftermath of this, everybody's just trying to figure out what's going on in New Asgard. And Thor is trying to call to Mjolnir and tell Mjolnir to come to daddy. But who shows up but Stormbreaker? And we have a hammer who has hammer envy. Um I wonder how a lot of people feel about the increased sentience of the hammers in this movie and the whole jealousy angle with uh, with Stormbreaker over Mjolnir. Again, it is it is Taika absurdity to its fullest. I laughed very hard, especially at this first time where uh, where it's almost like Stormbreaker is giving the evil eye to Thor for, uh, you know, cheating or whatever it may be attempting to cheat. Uh, But I don't know that. That part worked for me. So I, I don't know. How did you feel about the hammer envy throughout this movie, Paul? I liked it. I loved it. I thought the hammer envy was one of the funnier uh, gags. Like the goat thing, it, I, I didn't hate it, didn't love it. It was just fine. I thought it was funny at points. And it got a little tiresome at, towards the end, but it just, yeah, whatever. But the, the Thor envy or the hammer envy, oh my God. Like I, I loved all of that. I love Stormbreaker being jealous, and I love the fact that Thor just can't help but love, you know, his mm. first weapon ever. Oh my God! Like when, when Stormbreaker is making the the way to to fight Gore, and he starts like, you know, like, like tickling the other side of. Oh my God! I I about fell out of my freaking chair. Yeah. When when Hemsworth did that, yeah. I mean. That stuff was, that to me is one of the more again stronger aspects and cr- more creative aspects of just bringing out these ridiculousness of the characters and to me Hemsworth is the reason why this works. Hemsworth is so he's just, there's something here's something with his comedic timing and how he does things is so perfect. I can't even explain it, but man, he's he is such an underrated actor. I love his Thor so much. It's just oh my god, I I rolled at that part. I rolled at that. Yeah. Also, him giving Stormbreaker his first beer later on in the oh my in the god, movie. yes, <laughs> that's great. I uh, almost thought he's gonna make him drunk and like veer off. I almost thought that for a second. I was oh well, god. I was very happy that uh, Stormbreaker did not get drunk because I don't think it should well, be course, uh, right. impacted by the effects of alcohol. But it didn't really need to be because for some reason. Stormbreaker has a, a Bifrost. The, the ability of Stormbreaker to summon the Bifrost not as great as it used to be. As Thor like tries to take off to the, and he does like he's able to find that they're in the shadow. The kids are in the shadow realm, but he gets bounced back uh, in a rather hilarious fashion uh, to Asgard. But yeah, there's issues going on with the Bifrost, which I don't know what's up with that. I mean, I know I don't know if they just inserted that in this movie as an excuse to use the goat boat. Um, and have these characters have more time to be take longer on the journey and, and have these conversation scenes that they need to have. I guess that's why, because um, they didn't really explain it as like a new thing. So I, I guess I'll just, again, project onto this that maybe it's because of that jealousy issue that uh, Stormbreaker's mind is clouded and, and not, <laughs> not as effective 
as Stormbreaker normally has been when it comes to the Bifrost, because there's certainly no problem, like, uh, Stormbreaker allows Thor to land exactly where he needs to in Avengers Infinity War, and it's just fine, so it's not like this, uh, this, ham- this new axe-slash-hammer has a, a history of not uh, having summoning of having issues when summoning the Bifrost. So that's a new development for this movie, but we'll just roll with it because the goat boat is a lot of fun. But Thor, in order to figure out what's going on with the kids, is able to communicate with, because uh, he summons him or projects himself into the scene, Astrid, actually not Astrid, he's taken the name Axel because he's a huge GNR fan, as we also see in his room when the kids are taken earlier on in the movie. And he is able to, like Heimdall did, take Thor or allow Thor to project himself across the universe to where these kids are being held. And uh, I I like this. And Axel, of course, as Heimdall's son, having these similar powers. Um, A lot of stuff with kids in this. And a lot of times when you involve kids in superhero stuff, it can be polarizing and certainly may make... Some fans may have issues with certain things, especially when kids take on a lot of big powers later on in this movie. But uh, I, I got to give uh, a lot of credit to uh, Kieran L. Dyer, who plays Axel in this. I thought he was really good in this movie, uh, in the scenes that he had. And it's a character that I am genuinely interested in. And we're talking about like a fleet of young heroes, uh, just this small army of young heroes that are being built up in the MCU. And it looks like Axel has a really good chance to be one of them, especially if he can get additional development in a new asgard disney plus series is i'll just keep banging the drum yeah for that. You're, you're really banging that drum <laughs> look today. there's a lot of interesting characters who just find themselves there at the end of this movie and so that's where I, I think there's there's something to be said for it i'm also as i was watching this though like speaking of new asgard as i was watching this i was like oh they made avengers campus too early this is what avengers campus should be it should totally just be new asgard because it looks perfect i mean mm. How do they come up with infinity cones for this movie, but they don't have it oh. in Avengers Campus? <laughs> like, infinity True. cones was awesome. And a ride, like, in the goat boat that could be, like, soaring California, but through the MCU and the multiverse, these are free Imagineering ideas. But, like, <laughs> this is just, yeah. there's so many cool things. Like, because it was a theme park. Like, that's what they turned it into as a tourist trap for new Asgard to make some money uh, while being part of Earth. Like, I just, I, I thought all of that stuff was so cool and there's so many parts of that and then of course the asgardian mythology that all goes into it there's so much more there and as we're talking about like we didn't get enough of valkyrie in this and it was great to see sif reintroduced but we didn't really get a story with her in it so there's all i know is there's a cool location with a lot of cool characters that would be worth exploring for another six hours or so hey you're not wrong i'm not i'm not saying i disagree um, yeah, I th- I thought the kid stuff was fine. I didn't think it was bad or anything. I thought it, d- it did its job well. So yeah, th- that was a little bit of a surprise seeing H- Hamdol's uh, son, which is really cool. I- I- and again, I love seeing th- the kid aspect was interesting because I kind of thought for a second, huh, the the kid at the beginning, which we'll get into, and also the kids that he steals. I'm like, okay, obviously there's a theme here. And so I'm like, okay, where are they going with this? So, which they they just hammer on later on even more, obviously. So, yeah, this was the first sign of me being like, huh, I wonder if this is going to go somewhere specifically. So I started getting my 
my ears started perking up a little bit going about that thematical wise, you know, being like, okay, where are we going with this? Where are we, what are we doing? So yeah, I, I like the kids stuff. I was fine. Uh, I'll have more to say about, uh, of all that in the end, but yeah, I, I thought this was a good uh, little nod to, you know, continuity and also keeping that whole idea about Heimdall and, and what he, what his role was and, and what his son can eventually do as well. So thought it was really interesting stuff. Yeah, I thought it, uh, I, I liked a lot of what they were doing here. Some of it, I think, was just purely for the purposes of this film. And then other things, yeah, could be lending themselves toward uh, future MCU stories. So they decide they need to go battle Gore and save the kids in the Shadow Realm, but they're going to need some help. So they want to swing by Omnipotent City and recruit some gods to join an army to go battle Gore the God Butcher. And as they are getting ready, we get uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film, and it's a scene uh, that begins with just Jane alone, and she drops the hammer and changes from the mighty Thor to Jane Foster, who is battle in her battle with cancer, and we see that she is, uh, of course, unfortunately not looking any better, and then when she picks up the hammer, there's that moment, and maybe I might have gone on out of order here, but that moment where she just kind of gets very, very frustrated with this uh, and, and angry about this situation that she is in and everything that she is going through. And she just smashes the hammer through the sink and just has that moment. And I love the way Valkyrie kind of responds to it when Valkyrie shows up at the door and is checking to see if Jane's okay. And and Jane's just kind of brushing it off. But Valkyrie knows that Jane is not okay, but also knows that Jane may have had her moment, but that doesn't mean that she wants to talk about it right now. And at this moment, Jane just wants to get excited about the weapons that Valkyrie has um, and also get excited about a grenade that turns out to be a portable speaker and Valkyrie and Jane have a little dance. I love everything about this scene and the reason why it's it's one of my favorites. And just to expand on the the cancer part of this story and why I thought it was handled so well. And look, so many of us have our own different experiences as it relates to cancer, as I was saying earlier on in the podcast. And so there is no one definitive right way to provide a depiction of cancer in a work of art, like because everybody's experience is different. And so you're not going to be there may be a lot of similarities, but everybody's experience is still unique to them, whether it's from the perspective of somebody going through it or if you are with somebody who is going through it or you lose somebody who has gone through it and you're still going through it because once you lose them, it doesn't just end right there, of course. So the way this movie depicted it felt like uh, I, I like it certainly resonated with me as somebody who's lost two people very close to him uh, from cancer uh, throughout the course of my life and had a front row seat for just how horrible that can be and can continue to be. And there is a lot that is tragic and sad and just completely filled with grief and there's uh, and, you know, feelings of, of helplessness and, and despair. All of that is it's absolutely a part of it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't I wouldn't begrudge any story for acknowledging that reality. I think this movie, I think they made a choice in the way they showed it in this story where you have these moments. Right. Jane alone coming out of the MRI machine. This moment where she puts the hammer through the sink and, you know, her her desperation, her being upset and just wanting to find some way to be able to live. And all of that, I think, did a, they did a very good job of and even the way Thor reacts to the news later of telling Jane that he's so that he's so sorry, just instantly because it's the only thing he can say when he learns that she has cancer, that he's so sorry. 
I think it acknowledged the inherent sadness and all of those things that that come with cancer. But part of that journey is also finding a way to not be beaten by it, not be broken by it, if you can find some way to do that. And as I was saying before, if you're not going to get to choose how you die or you're not going to get to choose how you lose someone, then you choose how you live or you, you try to choose as best you can how you can be there for that person in whatever time that they have. And I think this movie did a good job of striking that balance. It's very easy in some of these stories to just treat it as tragedy porn and just focus on how sad it is because everybody understands that it's sad. But sometimes the harder thing to do is to find find what light you can in those moments and in those situations. And this movie does a good job of balancing that, of acknowledging the inherent negative things that that come with the territory while also trying to find, you know, the positives that we reach out for in those moments to to keep us going. And I, I think they did a, a great job in this scene where, you know, a, a character like Jane, she's allowed to have this moment and allowed to have this moment on all all to herself to, you know, express how she's feeling. And then at the same time, when a friend shows up, and Jane wants to focus on being happy and excited about going on this adventure and what she's going to do while she's still here, while she's still alive. And her friend responding to that, um, I, I think I thought that was very beautiful and, and a great depiction of just how and there's there's no good news when it comes to cancer. But how can you find the small moments, the small victories, uh, you know, the rays of light within it? I think this movie did a, a great job of that in a scene like this. Well said. I have nothing else to add. That was, was beautifully said, sir. So now let's go on the, uh, ah, got to move forward from that. I don't know how I segue. So I'm just going to say goat boat uh, is how we segue <laughs> out of this. So uh, it's the, because Stormbreaker is not working so well with the Bifrost. Well, it can just kind of be an engine that powers a goat boat that is also uh, headed by Tooth Nasher and, and Tooth Grinder. So I, I don't know how many plush dolls they're going to sell of the goats. Probably a lot. I don't know. Uh, good <laughs> good for them. Um, but yeah, I have no problem with the goats or the goat boat. It is a lot of fun. Um, and they are on their way to Omnipotent City. Uh, we also do get to revisit the Shadow Realm. And I, I want to talk about this before we go through everything in Omnipotent City, uh, where we get a scene between Gore and the kids. And this is, I don't know, this scene was a little... I liked it because Christian Bale did a gave a great performance and we don't get as much of gore as we probably should in this movie. But there was something about it that I felt was, I don't know, overly sadistic, I, I guess. And, and I know we're talking about a guy who has lost all <laughs> hope and all faith in gods and is in the process of murdering all of them. But I also feel like because the movie establishes this and, and reestablishes this later on, he does have a soft spot for kids. And so, like, having him uh, chop off the head, like, have this little serpent or whatever and, and twist off the head of it and throw it at the kids, I didn't really feel like he would, I don't know, something about that just didn't feel quite right. Even though these are kids who will, you know, some of them grow up to be gods. They're not all Asgardians. They're not all going to grow up to be gods. Um, and even so, they are just kids, and I feel like, I don't know, I, I would have I would have done this scene a little bit differently, and I... Uh, I'm grossing myself out by trying to rewrite a movie, <laughs> by trying to rewrite it. Yeah. But this scene I felt could have been better. And I, I felt like this is a scene where you could have actually really got to more of an emotional center with Gore, the God Butcher, and setting up 
the choice that he's going to make at the end of this movie, where this could have just been more about him explaining himself a little bit, as opposed to, which he kind of does when he identifies a girl who reminds him of his daughter, but just have him go into that emotional territory, be a little more vulnerable than maybe he would even want to be with these kids, rather than just trying to terrorize them for no reason um, later on. Like, that's the part where I, I feel like, you know, he's holding these kids to lure Thor to get Stormbreaker and all of that, as we'll find out later on in the movie. But if he's if they're serving that function for him, there's no need for him to go in and just scare them for the sake of scaring them. And given his uh, sympathy toward children, I don't actually think he would do what they have him doing here. So it's a great performance by Bale, but I, I think the scene could have been a lot better and a lot more authentic to the character we were presented and also just developed the character a, a little bit more, which, you know, even... Even with Bale's performance as, as great as it is, there there could have been more for this character in this film. And this scene was another opportunity that I, I felt was mostly missed. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't I don't think this version of Gore does that to kids, given what we got at the very beginning of the movie. I don't think so. I think he's using them. To me, I always thought he was using them as a way to get to more gods and to bring other people, you know, to lure them in. I'm not sure if he would go, totally go ahead and murder them outright. I don't know. I, that was my interpretation of it. But um, but at the same time, it just that I'm with you. It didn't feel right that he'd be that sadistic because considering what he lost and they all are roughly, if not a little bit younger or around the same age or a little bit older than his, you know, just not by much though, his daughter that died at the very beginning of the movie. So, which is motivating the character. So it's like, I, it's as it's impossible. I'm sorry. It's impossible for me to identify with that. Be like, I lost children. So I'm just going to get these people and be like pissed off and be like, yeah, you all suck kids. I'm like, eh, that doesn't really add, but yeah, add up. I mean, but, taking but again, the kids. Yeah. Taking the kids with no intention to harm them, except for, you know, obviously the trauma of being kidnapped, um, but with no intention to harm them, but to lure other people into a trap, that makes sense. But the whole like, yeah, I'm going to terrorize these kids while I've got them. Doesn't, it just doesn't track with the rest of what we're presented with this character. I agree. I'm with you. I'm 100% on that one. Yeah. So anyway, moving on to Omnipotent City. Uh, we stroll through this golden palace of, uh, of a place, and I like Omnipotent City. It looks really cool. Uh, we see all these other gods as uh, they look for disguises. Uh, we see all these other gods. We see Bao, the god of dumplings, which I thought was really, really funny. That was amazing. Also, the uh, Cronin god that, uh, like, Ainanagi or whatever they were saying, like, that uh, Korg was uh, saying and the, the king uh, or the god uh, repeated back. Um, but also, the throne for the Cronin god is perfect. It is an iron throne with scissors, because remember when Korg was introducing himself to Thor that you had nothing to fear from me unless you're made of scissors, and that scissors are part of the throne? That is a beautiful, that is a chef's kiss, <laughs> chef's kiss comedy touch uh, that I really liked in this. Um, and so as they go through uh, Omnipotent City, then they are awaiting the arrival of Zeus so they can get an audience with Zeus and explain the problem. And this will, of course, inspire Zeus and the rest of the gods to form an army at their back and uh, go and, and take on uh, Gore the God Butcher. Zeus is, of course, played by Russell Crowe. And I was just just about dying laughing at everything he was saying and doing in this. Uh, this was a brilliant comedic performance by Russell Crowe that reaches another level when he actually becomes more menacing and threatening in the mid credit scene. So uh, kudos to Russell Crowe on, on that. 
um, to have this guy just kind of being a little bit of a godly buffoon and then turning him into something more than that in uh, in short order, uh, I thought was really great. You know, the whole comedic bit with the flick too hard and then you get naked Thor, all of that worked for me and I, and I thought was really funny. All of the like dancing, the twirling with Thunderbolt, his you know trusty weapon, all of that uh, I thought was really, really funny. And also teasing in a bigger way because it was whispered by the Necro Sword. But when he starts talking about reaching eternity for uh, Gore the God Butcher and that being part of the mission, um, you know, when I heard eternity in the Necro Sword whispers, I was like, oh, okay, I, I don't know what that means. But then when uh, Russell Crowe uh, talks about it or when Zeus talks about it, my ears perk up because now we're talking okay so we're really talking about eternity and you and i have spoken many many times on this podcast i don't even know how many times way more times than i've asked for a new asgard disney plus series we have talked about eternity like the actual character eternity showing up at some point in the mcu i don't want to talk about how satisfied we were or were not by eternity's eventual appearance in this movie but the mention of that got me uh got me very excited um, I thought the action sequence when, of course, they end up having to defend themselves and Thor takes out Zeus, at least for the time being, all of that I thought was really good. I also feel like when we talk about the the sneaky themes of this movie, kind of like Thor Ragnarok had some sneaky or not so sneaky themes in it that were operating on a on a different level. I feel like that was revealed throughout this movie, but I think they hit it the hardest in this scene. Uh, but before I get into that, Paul, your thoughts on Omnipotent City and the Mighty Zeus. Uh, I thought it was cool. I, I, I thought it was really well done. It reminded me a little bit of Never Ending Story. Like one of the gods looked like one of those alien, one of the creatures from that, like um, when Atreyu shows up to that council meeting. Um, it gave me that. It's one of the aliens gave me a, a super mega or oh God, I should say not alien. Gave me a mega vibe from that for whatever reason. Um, but Russell Crowe Zeus, I had I expected a very like run of the mill like I am Zeus, you know, almost like uh, his character from Gladiator, but just a little bit older and and whatever. And holy smokes. I got something way better and yeah, way funnier. I mean, that little trot and turn and then oh picking up the skirt as he goes back down more of the steps. Just, oh, that was so funny. Hey, dude, just, I think just the uh, the accent that like, mm-hmm. you, it, it felt very much like, it's not the same thing, but it felt akin to like Usual Suspects with Benicio where you didn't really know where he, like where he was from. Like it was, his like accent was just kind of all over the place. And I felt like that was kind of what he was doing a little bit. It was kind of, again, he's a god, so he's going to be embodying like many different things, you know. And so it didn't really have, it had such a uniqueness to it. It was was a little ridiculous. But at the same time, he could get, I don't know, he got menacing too a little bit. And again, Russell Crowe is a great actor, but I thought he did a really good job for just a little, just a little bit he was given. He did a lot with, and I definitely can't wait to see him further on in the MCU, whatever that is. And yeah, I, I love his, this whole performance to me. This, again, I love this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. It mainly because of him. I thought he was great. Yeah, I, I thought he was fantastic. And so when I talk about the, uh, sneaky or not so sneaky themes, I mean, I think of Thor Ragnarok, when you really watch that movie and this is where, when it didn't have as much when it didn't have all the emotional depth that I was used to from Taika's films, this certainly wasn't part of it. And this is where I think this was something that was 
part of Ragnarok that I believe elevated that movie was, and, and it's a huge part of it, is the whole idea of you know history being written or rewritten, paved over by the winners. And of course, Hela uh, reveals Asgard's past, and you know goes into themes around the harm of imperialism and all of those things. Like Thor Ragnarok did such a great job in the way it presented that in short order, you know, over the course of this other crazy cosmic story that they were telling. And I think with this one, I mean, it's harder to find or define the the real world implications of something that's just all about battles between gods. But I think the message actually is that's a lot more practical and, and very clear, I, I think, in this scene, or maybe I'm just projecting, but you talk about the whole consolidation of power and, and those who are in power who have the ability to help and who choose not to, right? Like all these gods have, while they're being attacked, rather than helping and, and defending their people um, against threats and, and whatever the case may be, all they're doing is ensuring their own safety. We're okay here as long as we're all holed up together in omnipotent city. We're fine. So anybody else's problems are not our problems. We don't we have the power to help. We just choose not to. We have the power to make a difference. We choose not to. We would rather just be interested in our own self-preservation and for funsies planning the next orgy. And that's all that we want to do. So I think there's a lot in the messaging about this film and how those who have power help those who do not. And I think that is I, I mean, that's a lesson that Thor just plainly talks about how how that he was able to learn, um, you know, and, and of course, it's what Korg talks about when he explains, uh, you know, at the very in the early in the film and at the end with Love and Thunder of the ability to do good and then the, the powerful fighting on the on behalf of the powerless and, and all of those things of uh, of being of service and, and being in service of the greater good of others, not just for yourself that's right there throughout this movie. And I think this scene and the way it portrays the gods, because certainly there's a lot of, there's a big consolidation of power within our world that isn't necessarily going and going out and helping everybody else. But even if you're not just looking at it on that high of a level, there's plenty of people out there who have power, privilege, whatever it may be, and have the ability to make a difference. And it's really just pointing out the idea of doing good, being of service where and when you can, which I think is a very universal theme that most can agree with. And so and, and everyone ought to be able to agree with. So there is a theme throughout that theme throughout this movie, I think is communicated very, very well. And I think that is something that elevates this story. So in addition to what they're doing in, in the depiction of Jane Foster and what she's going through and the choices that she makes with respect to her cancer and how she's going to live, um, against the, you know, and the choice that she can make for how she's going to live versus the choice she can't make as far as how she's going to die. I think all of those elements are, are really working well in this movie. So when I talk about loving this movie so much, uh, so absolutely and unabashedly, it's not just because it has a lot of music that I would already be listening to on a playlist that I put together. It's not just because it has a lot of visuals that I like. It is all of those things and a very awesome version of the Marvel fanfare. It's all of those things, but it is working on a deeper level, which I think, you know, the best MCU movies, and I'm not putting this in the Marvel masterpiece category that I've uh, teased for anybody who's a longtime listener of the podcast who has any idea what that means. Um, I'm not I'm not ready to put this movie in any sort of category yet, but even to be in the category of 
the the great uh, MCU movies or very good MCU movies. It's got to be working on some other level. And I feel like this movie is uh, with the themes that it explores against the backdrop of this crazy story of, you know, of gods and god butchers. So really loved that. And I think, you know, the Omnipotent City sequence does a good job of highlighting it. But once they uh, dispatch, because they realize they're not going to get any help, the best they can do is steal Thunderbolt. So Thunderbolt becomes Valkyrie's weapon, and then they continue their journey on the goat boat to the Shadow Realm. So we have Korg explaining the process of Cronin baby-making to Valkyrie, and he also correctly identifies, psychoanalyzes Valkyrie in that she uses booze and whatever, booze and meaningless uh, affairs to cover up or conceal or fill the void that's left behind from the grief of all of those that she has lost, including love that she has lost. And Valkyrie pretty much acknowledges that Korg nailed it. Meanwhile, Jane and Thor, well, we already mentioned Thor initially was just talking to Stormbreaker, trying to make up with Stormbreaker and giving Stormbreaker his first beer. And then Jane is out there talking to Thor. They look at space dolphins, which... I was a little taken aback by only because in the comic books, it's space sharks. And um, I mean, I love dolphins and sharks, but Taika previously, I think, had teased space sharks at some point um, for Thor Love and Thunder. So originally, in some version of this movie, it was going to be space sharks, and then they switched to space dolphins. It's fine. Space marine life is cool. Uh, um, It's all good. But uh, we get a great uh, sequence there of Thor and Jane um, I just I, I love this scene so much. I, I love the way that, you know, it's it's initially awkward as these characters are trying to reconnect. And it's been acknowledged throughout, like when uh, when they're in Omnipotent City and Thor is, is clearly into Jane and Valkyrie's kind of calling it out. And then Thor's like, whose side are you on? And Valkyrie just punches him in the shoulder and says, Team Jane, because obviously, of course, she's Team Jane. Um, I think we all are. Team Jane's awesome. So I think getting to this moment where they finally get to have a a real and honest conversation uh, with one another. And in this moment, you know, Thor talking about wanting to feel shitty and he wants to be back to being in love with Jane or not that he, he's still obviously in love with Jane, but being able to actually connect with that and having that be part of his present and not just part of his past. And then Jane just tells him, flat out. I mean, she doesn't mean to say it. She almost tries, she tries to take it back or walk it back, but just shares that she has cancer. And I love Thor's immediate reaction to it. I mean, her saying it, but then wishing she could take it back because it just harkens back to what she said earlier in the story, right? That people Mm. look at her differently. They treat her differently. This is the, uh, this is the love of her life. And this is the one person she doesn't want looking at her differently or treating her differently. But Thor doesn't look at her differently or treat her differently. He just he acknowledges the seriousness of the moment and what's been communicated to him when he says that he's just and it says all he can say, not that it changes anything, but that he is so sorry that she has cancer. Like this is and wants to know how long uh, wants to know how long she's known about it. And she describes for six months, she just thought she was feeling tired. And then it's stage four. And as she explained, as she and Darcy counted about earlier, it doesn't get any higher than stage four. And I, I think the way Thor talks to her about it and that because what I was talking about earlier in the podcast, that no, no, none of us know how much time we have and, you know, trying to just talk her through it, but not try to fix it for her or anything like that, because he can't fix it. Just acknowledging the feelings of that moment 
Um, but then just being there for her in that moment, which obviously she responds to, and they both get to start feeling pretty shitty and even shittier when they start smooching. So um, this scene, it is it is sad. It is heartbreaking. It's romantic. It's all of these things at once. Uh, so it's a lot more than shitty as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this was a really great moment. And again, this is the backbone of the, of the movie. And this is where I liked all the stuff that they they were leading up to. And, and you knew... You know, with two great actors, like, you know, again, I think Natalie's a good actor. I don't, I just don't think she always does the great, uh, doesn't always put her, her full, uh, her full to, uh, press foot forward, you could say. But, um, but either way, I thought she's, I think she's great in this movie. And I think Hemsworth always does a solid job. And I think that this part is a really sweet and a very real moment. And I think, we don't really get a lot of these in um, MCU films where they are very relatable on a, you know, real sense, right? Of, of telling someone you have cancer. That's, I fortunately have not been ever been told a loved one has had cancer before. I, I knock on wood and pray to God that never has to happen. But, um, you know, but seeing this seemed very real. The reaction is very real. Uh, and again, I, I thought it was very, it was really well, run, well done and, and well written. So I, to, again, this is where to me, the movie really kicks into a, a better, I start settling in way more and I start getting more invested into the story because of scenes like this and this whole thing. So yeah, I, I love this part and it was, it, it was gut wrenching a little bit because you're seeing, you know, this, she has to tell him finally. Right. And again, like you, you we actually, we actually get to see the, the person who has cancer t say it out loud before we already see Darcy and, and, and Valkyrie. They already know, right? Or they assume what's going on. And But now we are seeing her tell someone, like, I have cancer. And we and again, it, we're seeing it through Thor's eyes. And, and it's just it's it's gut-wrenching. And I, I, I loved seeing the realistic uh, kind of just emotions everyone was having. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a, a fantastic scene. I, I think it was... Just uh, really outstanding, beautifully written, beautifully acted. Um, and then just that beautiful backdrop of on the cruising on the goat boat through uh, through space. And then uh, we uh, we get to a space that isn't quite so beautiful, that is devoid of color as we enter the shadow realm. But by the way, I love the visual of the black and white going into the shadow realm, which was already kind of shown. We knew we were getting something like this because of the trailers, but to actually see it on the big screen in IMAX uh, was really a sight to behold. And um, it just, it, it looked fantastic as they went into the shadow realm uh, searching for gore. I mean, that bit of how they land on the, the shadow realm, this planet or moon or whatever they're on, uh, I thought was really, really funny with you know, crashing into it and then the goat scream and then boat just tips on to the side there. But um, that part I, I thought was funny, but then just the scene got really intense, you know, as they're searching for, for gore and, Jane is the one who realizes exactly what's happening here and that it's uh, she gets to play Admiral Akbar and say it's a trap. So there's our Star Wars connection for Natalie Portman. And she just takes Stormbreaker and chucks it. Why? Because Stormbreaker is the key for Gore getting to eternity. And if you get to eternity, you get one wish. And of course, he's going to wish for his to fulfill his vow that all gods will die. He can take them all out, uh, all remaining gods with one wish. And he needs Stormbreaker to do that. Jane casts Stormbreaker aside, which leads to now we get that three-on-one showdown of Jane and of the mighty Thor, uh, Thor and Valkyrie. 
But before that starts, he ensnares them in a trap. And this is a great piece where I think Gore gets to be menacing in a way that actually fits his character and his story, right? Like he's just telling Gore to, or he's just telling Thor, rather, to call the axe. And then as he's talking it through with everybody else, he talks about Valkyrie and he kind of fans out over Valkyrie a little bit and talking about how the gods weren't there when uh, Valkyrie and her sisters, when they fell, um, they were must have been pleading for help and those prayers were not answered, which is something that Gore obviously has experience with. And then when he's talking about Jane, he can instantly tell that she's dying and he can relate to that because he is dying as well. So that's the price that he's paying for wielding the Necro Sword is he only has a limited amount of time in order to actually fulfill his vow, honor his own vow, and kill all of these gods. So they're alike in that way, Jane and Gore, in that their time is limited, and he is telling her that there is no eternal reward. Nothing can be done for her, nothing is going to save her, and there is no happy ending uh, at the end of her battle against cancer. It's not going to lead itself to some eternal paradise that this is just going that death will just be the end for her which i think elevates the stakes and of course uh, makes it that much more beautiful and impactful the choice that she makes uh, later on in the movie but so I, I like what they're setting up there but this is christian bale i think this might be my favorite scene that he's in uh for gore the god butcher and, and his performance and that's saying something because his performance is pretty great in every scene that he's in even in one that didn't really I felt fit for the characters we talked about earlier on in the podcast, but he was really good in this moment, kind of breaking down, really applying his perspective, his reality to the experience of every other character, because like any villain, he kind of likes the idea of getting some people to at least agree with him in some way or feeling like it's just, it's validating himself by likening his perspective and attaching his perspective through the lens of other people's experiences as he's doing here with Jane and Valkyrie. Um, so before we even get to the battle, which was awesome, this little sequence right before the battle, uh, I thought was, uh, was really great. Another one of my, another one of my favorite scenes in the film. Yeah, I, this was a really great action sequence. I liked getting the, the reveals of what Gore is doing, he's going to, you know, going to eternity, all that. And I was like, okay, we're going to see eternity. Sweet. Let's do this. And I love the fact that Jane figures out what's going on that, you know, he, that at least with Gore, he takes out people. He is a, a force to be reckoned with. He's not just, you know, just kind of running around escaping. Like he's actually, you know, he takes people out. He's very powerful and that is killing him. I, I loved all of that. So, this was a, I, I like the whole idea of of color of death and just being very very bleak, or not bleak but just kind of plain and, and just nothingness and that black and white is that gives that that creative feel of nothingness a little bit which I liked I thought it was a good creative touch so yeah I loved all of this stuff and uh, good really good setup and again I like seeing uh, Jane Foster's Thor kind of have some you know validity of like oh she's not just a big you know i'll just throw this hammer around you know kicking ass it's like she actually figures things out and, and realizes you know i like giving her that little moment there yeah i, I thought that was great and the battle sequence was awesome i mean mm. gore and his shadow monsters against mighty thor thor and, and valkyrie uh was great and it's just it's such a cool visual like i know it's, it's not the first time we've seen the mcu in black and white right like we saw wandavision in that sense but with WandaVision, mm -hmm. it's it's artifice, right? It's the sitcom creation of Wanda Maximoff. It doesn't really look like that. 
but this is what this place really looks like uh, as far as when you're in the shadow realm in the MCU. And that part of it I, I thought was really cool. And also it's very different, right? It's it's against type, it's against form in that way where WandaVision, it's that way to serve the function of being a 1950s and then 1960s sitcom. Whereas in this one, it's the opposite of what we normally see. This is a big space battle. We're supposed to have color, and especially in a Thor movie, it's supposed to be bright and vibrant and colorful, and it's not. And it's all shadows, and, and that, I thought, just looked... It's such a different look than we're used to seeing in the MCU. So this action sequence, it really stands out because of this whole sequence, but then the battle in particular really stands out uh, in that respect. And then when there are some little injections of color into it, they really pop, and I thought that worked very, very well. Um, and then, of course, in this battle, uh, we see that Valkyrie is injured, so they have to take off, they summon the Bifrost, and they get away. Oh yeah, we totally, for I forgot that, yeah, Thor is, or Korg is still just a face in all of this, which I think we forgot to talk about when he uh, gets killed for all of two seconds, or so we think, in Omnipotent City, but I like face Korg uh, as, as much as I have to say about that. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Because he's still just Korg. I also like him figuring out and then mastering the the whistles to summon, uh, the, <laughs> summon the goats. But anyway, uh, as they're getting away in the Bifrost, it's uh, kind of it's a last minute thing, kind of like what Hela did um, with uh, getting in the Bifrost. Gore is able to hang on to Stormbreaker, get him, uh, get it away from Thor, Mighty Thor, and Valkyrie, who go back to New Asgard, and uh, Gore will continue on to get to Eternity. So this brings us to the hospital, where uh, Jane is now bedridden. And we are told that uh, something is uh, blocking the treatment of her cancer. And Thor realizes what this is. Uh, it is Mjolnir. It is being Thor that is, uh, that is blocking the treatment to her cancer. They don't go into as much detail in the movie that I can recall, as we're talking about this now in the podcast. Not nearly as detailed as the explanation for the comics. I think they mostly get the point across, though. Basically, the, the hammer is nullifying the uh, the cancer treatment it's, it's it's getting in the way of it in the comic books it's a lot more detailed in the explanation because you do see like in the movie where she's jane is reading about mjolnir and how it can have positive effects on on one's health and all of those things in the comic books they explain that mjolnir part of the the health benefits is in, you know of course all of the superpowers that that come along with it but also it is taking out impurities within the body. And for cancer treatment, chemotherapy is an impurity in the body because you are killing cells to kill can to take cancer cells out with them. So that is where having wielding Mjolnir actually nullifies Jane's chemotherapy. That's how they explain it in the comic books, which means that she's actually just not being treated for her cancer. So they don't go into that much detail in, in explaining the science of it in the movie. I don't really think they need to. I think all you need to know is the hammer, using the hammer, being the mighty Thor, is ultimately bad for Jane's human health. It is accelerating uh, her death as opposed to actually helping her in any sort of way. But it really sets up what's most important, which is Jane's choice, the sacrifice that she makes in response to that. And I, I like the way they set this up initially where Thor is reacting the way that anybody would, right? Like you 
you have a loved one who is dying, you want to maximize, you, you want to do anything you can to change that outcome, or if you can't change it, you want to do what you can to delay that outcome, or at least that's the very natural instinct to have, and that's certainly what Thor expresses, like when she's saying, like, why shouldn't I do this, or what should I continue living for, or, or whatever it may be, and Thor just says, because I love you. And that means something to Jane, and that moves her in that, and she loves Thor as well. So there is a part of her that wants to cling to whatever hope they might have regarding their future, and uh, so that's what initially it looks like she's going to just allow Thor to go off and fight Gore by himself. We know that's not the choice that she's going to stick with. We'll talk about the choice she ultimately make uh, makes when we get to that point in the movie, but setting up the stakes of that choice was very important because it just heightens the impact when you see her arrive in the battle against Gore because they've totally clarified and laid out all of the stakes and, and all of the ramifications of the choice that she ultimately makes to be the mighty Thor one last time and for that to be her last act in life. Um, I, I love the way they they set that up in this sequence. Um, I thought it was was really great. Again, with just depicting the cold, hard reality to it, but then also the choices that come into play. If you're not going to necessarily choose how you die, um, that you get to choose the for all the time that you can, you choose how you live, um, and that's the choice that that Jane is faced with here. Yeah, I I love this stuff, man. This is where I was like, just like, ugh. And when when he tells her, which I wish I would have done, I'll explain a little bit more of a, a better. We talked a little bit uh, a little bit about this already. The fact that. They could explain the whole, you know, why the, the hammer is doing this and, and whatnot a little bit better. Because it was when it, when it happened, I went, oh, that, that's how they explained it? Wait, what? It just kind of was a little confusing for, for a simpleton like myself. So even for me. Uh, either way, I knew what was happening. And it was it was really – it was brutal. Um, again, great, great interaction between Thor and Jane and just seeing the fact that she agrees to, to let him go and not to not do it. Was was surprising to be honest. I thought it was you know I knew it was gonna stay, but it was a cool moment that he he got to. He was so concerned. He's like, no, we can't we can't do this. And so I, I love I love the scene. It, it meant it meant a lot to me to see to see this part because you get to see the relationship really unfold and his love for Jane really you know come out and mm -hmm. uh, him basically say that, which is a great moment. Yeah, and I think. I, I like the way they portrayed it, though, and that initially she wants to, it's not so much, uh, appeasing feels like the wrong word, although maybe it's the right one. Like, Thor is expressing this love for her, and, and he wants more time with her and wants to cling to this hope that she'll be able to beat this and uh, that she'll be able to, you know, survive this and her cancer could go into remission and all of those things. And, and so I, I think for Thor... He just wants to, or I think Jane sees that Thor is just trying to be as optimistic as he can and, and cling to some hope. And I and I think there's a part of her that wants to lean into that, but where I, I think it works even better to have her in that moment sort of agree to it, not quite begrudgingly, but agree to it even though it goes kind of against her instincts. But then when she's on her own, she gets to make that choice because ultimately as much as Thor or Darcy or anyone might want to be there for her, there is a part of this that, that Jane undeniably has to face alone. There's a part of this that 
not everybody, despite their best intentions and everything they would want to do to be there for someone, they're not necessarily going to be there for them. They can't be in their head with that person and with all the thoughts and all the feelings that that person is going to have to go through and experience. And so for Jane to be able to have Thor go away on this mission and then be able to make that choice on her own for herself based on what she believes is right, um, I think that was something that would, it just made it, I think it made it that much more powerful to set it up the way that they did. And I think it just goes in, goes to show that, you know, as Thor was saying in that scene that we love so much of uh, when she first tells him that he has, that she has cancer. And when she's, when Thor is talking about their past and how Jane was the one who made him worthy, who helped show him how to be worthy. Well, this is another way in which uh, in which she shows him, I think, in the choice that she ultimately makes, even though, you know, his response to it is perfectly understandable and that he doesn't necessarily uh, love it when he understands the immediate implications of it, as we'll see in the in the following sequence. But I think it's but he even if he doesn't like it because he knows what the outcome is going to be, uh, he certainly respects it and he understands it because he knows what Jane is, is really trying to do and, and what Jane is prioritizing here. And it is the opportunity to use what powers she has and what time she has left to do the greatest good that she can. Um, so the way they set all of that up, I thought was uh, I thought that was very well done. I also like the scene uh, outside of that between Thor and Valkyrie. And this is where Valkyrie is explaining she won't be able to take part in the battle because of the injury she sustained in the last one, and I'm wondering, uh, kind of looks like this maybe with some additional photography or reshoots, kind of looks like the courtyard on the Warner Brothers lot with this scene outside the hospital for Thor and Valkyrie. Maybe the interiors for the hospital were also on the uh, the Warner lot, um, but that's just uh, movie location trivia as far as what that looks like to me. Uh, but anyway, uh, this sends us, uh, it's time to go off into battle, and Thor has to... Uh, take on alone Gore the God Butcher, or as it turns out, not alone, because as Thor gets there, it's going to be him by himself against Gore and a lot of shadow monsters, and Thor is really pressed for time because he has to stop Gore from opening the uh, gateway to eternity while at the same time protecting all the kids from these shadow monsters. So what does Thor do? He empowers the kids to uh, he empowers the kids to protect themselves and battle these uh, these shadow monsters. So uh, we get this uh, sequence where Thor is explaining, going through the whole worthiness thing, and but he does make it clear for limited time only with the powers that he is giving to these kids. And then we have an army of uh, mini gods of thunder or temporary gods of thunder uh, along with Thor. I thought this part with the kids was so cool, and that shot of that little girl spinning around with her bunny taking out a bunch of shadow monsters was awesome, and the fight between Thor and Gore the God Butcher was also awesome. I mean, visually, it was just a great battle between these characters and uh, and everything about that, and then, just, and then, of course, what turns the tide when Jane shows up and Thor... You know, his reaction to it, as I was saying before, perfectly understandable uh, based on how he feels about Jane. But really, it just comes it, what it's really about, though, is Jane's choice. And it's so heroic when she shows up. And this is a huge part of why I always loved that comic book storyline that Jason Aaron told with Jane Foster's Thor. 
and I, I've talked about it a little bit, I, I think, on podcasts or, or wherever else, but I think it's as heroic of a choice as you could really expect anyone to make. And in the context of superheroes, everything they do, right, is an act of putting themselves at risk for the greater good in service of others or trying to save people and whatever it may be. And that's always a very noble choice. It's a very heroic thing. And we love and, and admire these characters for these choices that they make. But where this reaches another level is because it, it's been explained, right? And even though it wasn't explained in as detailed of a way as it was in the comic books, it's enough for Jane to accept and know that if she chooses to be the mighty Thor, it's not just about the risk that she's putting herself in harm's way and something bad may happen. It's that she is already weakened, and if she goes to be the mighty Thor again, it's not about what may happen, it's about what will happen. By being the mighty Thor again, she is accelerating her own demise. She is, you know, bring, her death will come about that much faster, almost instantly, by choosing to be the mighty Thor but she does it anyway because it's the right thing to do because she has the power to help the powerless to do the right thing and she is going to wield that power regardless of what it may mean for her and that's the and that is also a victory for her not that she necessarily means it to be that or anything like that but that is her her great victory in this is that she didn't choose to have cancer she didn't choose to not have any sort of cure for that. She didn't choose to, she didn't even necessarily choose initially to be the mighty Thor. But once she did, once she had the opportunity, that's what she went with. But she certainly didn't choose that being the mighty Thor would accelerate the effects of her cancer and bring about her death that much faster. She didn't choose any of those things. But she had, when she had the ability to make a choice about how she was going to live and what she was going to do with the time that she had. She made the best, most heroic and, and noble choice that she possibly could have. And that is, by the way, after it's been explained to her, whether she believes it or not, not that this movie goes into Jane's faith, but as far as we know, she's doing this with no expectation of eternal reward or anything like that. And it's not about, well, if I do this, then I'll die in this battle and I'll go to Valhalla, even though that's where she ends up. She doesn't make it with any promise that that's what's going to happen for her. She does this without any promise of anything after this. This may just mean her death, but she is going to make the absolute most and do the greatest good in the what she chooses as the final moments of her life. And it is such a beautiful choice, which makes that moment uh, so powerful, so meaningful uh, And we when we get to this final battle. And it just has you, I mean, not that you weren't anyway, but rooting for Jane, and it just becomes that much more triumphant when she does take out the Necro Sword. Not that that's the end of it, but uh, to get that to get that part of the victory over Gore the God Butcher, and also her sacrifice is a huge part of what changes the heart of Gore the God Butcher and allows the outcome that we see at the end of this anyway. It's just, it's beautiful, and I, I loved it. Yeah, I think what saved this movie for me was the entire third act. I think this, all this is one of the stronger third acts in a while for a Marvel film, and I think this to me is what I it prevented me. And I've seen this a lot from other people too, that have shared my same opinion or just in general, don't love it as much as they, they wanted to. Everyone I've, I've seen that kind of, I have similar taste and all agree that the third act kind of saves this movie for them. And it, I definitely echo that too. 
I loved all this. I loved empowering the children. I loved the fight scene between Thor and, and uh, Gore. I loved Jane coming in, at the, like, sacrificing herself. You knew what that meant. Again, they they really just that moment was well deserved. I thought Taika did a great job building that up to that moment and her sacrificing herself as becoming Thor that one last time was a, a really great moment. They really you really felt the impact of her doing that. It wasn't, you know, we we kind of knew it was coming, but when it happens, it's like, oh man, we know we know what it means. And there's a, a lot more impact there than a, a typical, you know come at the very end of the save the day kind of a thing. And I, I thought it was really well done and built up beautifully in this part. And I love this whole, this whole ending was great. Seeing the, the outline of eternity trying to get in there. That was cool too. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, this was a really great third act and I, it saved the movie for me. I, I went from not really liking it a whole ton, liking it. Okay. To like, I liked it a lot, a lot more at because of this third act. So I loved everything from this. I love I love it when he when he gave when he yelled out the power of Thor. Yeah, he, he oh, gives man. everyone and when they the do the animal. Yeah, well, in the big you know in the big leap too, like the slow motion leap, kind of like when Thor leapt onto the Rainbow Bridge in uh, yeah. Thor Ragnarok. You know the slow mo thing, and then of course you know more GNR and, and it just everything about it was it was so cool. And remember Rain though. Remember yeah. Rain was my jam, dude. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's I love I love that song. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. So yeah, I I thought it was I, I loved that whole sequence, and of course it's uh, you know at its best when you know Jane arrives when the mighty Thor arrives, and and also you know like when he's I like you know Gore calls her like Lady Thor or whatever, she's the mighty Foster or the mighty Thor, and I'll also accept Doctor Jane Foster, and she does her best to finally make Eat My Hammer work, which is you know questionable as superhero catchphrases go, but I, I'll allow it because. It's Jane and and she's amazing. Doctor Jane Foster and she's fantastic and and yeah, it's just such a powerful and, and heroic moment for her. And then, despite all of that, you know the uh, by the time they're able to recover Stormbreaker, break the Necro Sword, at that point the gate to eternity has already been opened. So Gore is able to crawl through it, and then uh, Thor and and Jane follow. And so there is Gore, uh, right there, bef- uh, kneeling before Eternity, ready to fulfill his vow with his one wish. And he's even asking, like, why they're still fighting and, and why they've been doing all of this. And Thor saying that they're, you know, choosing love. And Thor even just walks, turns his back on him, like, you've you've already won. Like, you're gonna make your wish, and that's that's gonna be the end for me, and that's gonna be the end of my time, which is not my choice, but. I, I will use what choice I do have and to spend these last moments with Jane, with uh, with the one I love. And and I think Gore seeing what Jane had done, what she chose and, and what that meant and also what Thor was doing, I think that was a huge part of what allowed him to to kind of refocus, but also with Thor's help and explaining to him and that, hey, you can you have the power to wish for anything you want, including bringing back the one you lost, your daughter. So you can wish for all gods to die, or you can wish to actually have the one thing you lost. And of course, Gore is fearful that his daughter would be alone. Jane is the one who says that she wouldn't be alone, and then looks up at Thor to set up what Thor, of course, is going to do as the uh, as the caretaker, dad, uncle, whatever, to this uh, child coming back. And Gore makes that choice. 
And then we see, uh, well, we see this reflection of eternity that walks over towards Gore and kneels, and it is his daughter, and then he, you know, passes on. Um, I'm a little mixed on the visual portrayal of eternity, like, as a static image. Like, I know inside it, you can see, like, the depth of the universe and the stars, and you can see it moving and, and all of those things. So... Some of that I liked, but after wanting Eternity to be in the comic or be show up in the MCU for so long, when it's usually such a big, imposing presence in the comic books, it felt a little too small for me in this. It it did not derail the movie for me at all. Like not one bit. It's not like, oh, I, I dislike this movie because I didn't like the visual design of Eternity. I get what they were going for. And I kind of liked it, but I didn't love it. And I, I kind of wanted to love it when Eternity showed up in the MCU. So it's not a super strong feeling, but it's just kind of a, eh. Um, the emotion of the scene is way more important, and that totally works. So I can forgive uh, the design. But um, I know you are obviously have uh, a big interest in in character slash entity design, Paul. So what mm-hmm. it, it sounded like you, uh, you liked the look of Eternity, though. Well... <clears throat> I like the look of it in the in the statue that they're that they're they're before they get into the actual eternity. I was confused if that was supposed to be eternity or it was like another statue or whatever of the stagnant image. So I looked at it as like if you reach that point, that's like a like a another statue of it kind of a thing. That's what I looked into it as anyway. I don't know. That's kind of my interpretation because there's no way you're going to waste eternity on that when, you know, I just reread or read those Doctor Strange comics with eternity in them. And holy moly, like you're that is just the biggest injustice. if You're, you're going to use a static adaptation for the image of eternity. So I don't think so. I think there, I think you're only doing this to introduce eternity later on, because I think all these the tri- living tribunal eternity the betweener um all these godlike characters galactus they're all going to be you know the celestials they're all going to become big parts later on to some kind of major story so i don't think this is going to be the the interpretation it, it didn't feel like that way to me it, I, I, I didn't interpret that as eternity because eternity is like an actual like moving being right so i felt like that was just like another kind of like a uh, some kind of homage to eternity that, that it's speaking on his behalf, almost kind of a thing. So I don't know. I, I that's the way I look to it, look to it as, um, as the actual, like the daughter becoming this, you know, daughter or the, this new eternity being very interesting because that's not in the comic books at all. Um, there are some inter- interesting things they've done with eternity and offshoots of eternity a little bit. And the most recent one being the eternity mask, um, which I thought was a really cool idea, to be honest. Um, I liked it. I, I liked that idea. It's different. Uh, I thought it would have been cooler if she actually looked like Eternity a little bit more, like in the reflection. That's just me. But I know it's also really expensive. So uh, well, maybe she will I, in certain moments in the future. You never know. And, and that's what and that's what I'm hoping for. Um, I was not expecting that, to be honest. I was not expecting that whole thing to happen. And that was a, a very much, again, why I like this third act so much was because of I would not expect that did not expect his daughter to be resurrected as an eternity child. Basically, I'm like, oh, OK, and and did not expect her to be raised by Thor. So there was a lot of great stuff with that that I was very much not expecting and was very much pleased to see 
and kind of see where, where they're going with this, the kind of series potentially going forward. So, yeah, again, go, you know, all that kid stuff they foreshadowed was all paid off here, which, again, it wasn't expecting because when Korg says, what do I see her and Jane make a make a baby? You know, and I'm like, yeah. oh, OK, like I thought, what are they saying here? And when you see that, I'm like, OK, I like this. Wasn't expected. They're going somewhere different. You're and they're definitely building the next generation of heroes in the Marvel Universe. So I thought that was very interesting which again, I'm not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Excuse me, Marvel Comics in general are not is not known for a generational heroes, man. And 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 that's the really interesting thing about I thought I think it's so funny is DC's always been the legacy heroes uh, idea, and Marvel never was. And it's funny because now the movies are now making them have to be generational. You know, they're moving that way because of this discontinuing continuity. So. It's just ironic for me as a family, like, man, we're going the generational route hardcore in the MCU and in Marvel Comics because of the MCU. So I love this. I love the Eternity Girl. I thought love is going to be really interesting. I love how Quark sets it all up at the end. And uh, yeah, this to me saves the movie. All all this is great. Yeah, I thought the the whole final battle sequence and then, yes, the, the choice that Jane makes and how that impacts gore and, and the the conversation between gore and thor and jane and the choice that he ultimately makes that yeah this was all started by the loss of your daughter and here you are with an opportunity to bring her back and so the the choice that he makes and, and the way he was reached by you know emotionally by thor and jane i i thought was was really great and then yeah that reflection which i gotta give a shout out to uh to on the air one of our discord members who was wondering if uh that was singularity that we see as the reflection in the water, which is kind of an eternity looking character. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what the future holds for this, but then yeah, cutting to everything that's happening on new Asgard and we have Valkyrie, we have Sif who are training this next generation of Asgardians, including Axel. So as I said, they, they definitely set the table there and I don't think it was completely unintentional, like setting the table for more things happening in a new Asgard, and it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to a Thor 5. I think it can be places outside of that, and obviously Disney Plus gives them a, a ready-made place uh, outside of the movies, to, but still in the MCU to explore more of that, and I, I really hope that they do. But yeah, the, the bit at the end where now Thor is uh, has a daughter, which, I mean, she's Gore is still her dad, so she's referring to him as Uncle Thor, but he's the one taking care of her, making pancakes, half-cooked or not, fully cooked as far as I'm concerned, uh, making pancakes, making breakfast, and uh, you know, educating her on why she should be wearing boots because it's not going to be his fault if she winds up with sore feet after wearing slippers all day. And I, the whole setup for it of like, they're getting ready to, like he's getting her ready for the first day of school and you know, protect the kids who were, who were scared and, and being picked on, like protect them from the bullies and, and whatever else. And it's all getting ready for school, but no, it's actually a battle and they got to save the nice aliens from the, the mean ones attacking them. And the way they set that up of that's love and thunder is uh, the child born of eternity and Thor, the God of thunder teaming up and, and taking on uh, whatever bad guys are, are out there and helping whoever needs help and, and carrying on the spirit of, Jane teaching Thor how to be worthy, carrying on um, 
you know, the best of Gore the God Butcher and the choice he makes at the end, not so much all the, the bad stuff that he did in between. Um, uh, and But really just respecting that, you know, it's just Thor every day with each step honoring Jane. And really that was the, the promise that Jane made to Gore, that uh, his daughter would not be alone. And, and Thor is the one who has to fulfill that promise. And he's doing so happily um, as, a, as a father to, uh, to, I guess we'll just call her love for now. Um, that was, uh, I thought that was very touching, very, very sweet. And I know maybe not everybody's going to love the idea of Thor running around raising a kid, but I'm here for it. I love it. I, I thought it was a great way to have, you know, these characters need to progress and, and live their lives and they don't get to have a, a status quo that is uh, maintained quite the same in movies as it is in the comic books. They're, they're just going to have to evolve. And I, I love this step. And and certainly this is a character who can go on and have a big future in the Marvel Cinematic Universe when we talk about legacy characters and, and going across different generations. Um, certainly there is a, a tremendous amount of potential there. Um, but I, I thought it was fantastic. I, I really loved the ending of this movie. It was just the perfect uh, you know, perfect way to, uh, to end it of you know, more adventures taking on this new form with this uh, new character and, and this new... A uh, whole new dynamic for Thor, um, for himself as a character as he moves forward. But uh, meanwhile, Jane, Fo- Doctor Jane Foster, the Mighty Thor, is immortalized in spirit and in statue form as we see uh, in, in glorious fashion on New Asgard, uh, which I just I, I absolutely loved. Now we get to talk about the tags, the mid and post credit scene. We'll go in order. Uh, let's talk about that mid credit scene. So it is Zeus explaining the way that gods just aren't seen the way they used to be. They don't have the respect and they don't have the fear of the people that they did before and saying that uh, people will fear the gods again once Thor falls from the sky. And who is going to make Thor fall from the sky? The son of Zeus, Hercules, as played by Brett Goldstein, perhaps better known to many as Roy Kent in the Apple TV Plus series Ted Lasso. I flipped for this on a number of fronts uh, because it's Hercules finally coming to the MCU. Been so many rumors about this character. I think the most persistent rumors were that this character, for a long time, there were rumors that this character was going to pop up somewhere in Eternals. That didn't happen, but of course there had been rumors that transitioned to, especially once people knew that Russell Crowe was playing Zeus in this movie, then there's the setup. Hercules is going to show up in Thor Love and Thunder. Didn't happen in the main plot. Happens here in the mid credit scene. I love that Hercules is here now with the setup of Hercules having a rivalry and an antagonistic relationship with the Avengers because Zeus is not a fan of superheroes because that's who people are looking up to these days instead of the gods, although who can blame them for not looking up to the gods when they're hiding away and planning orgies in Omnipotent City instead of actually helping. But nevertheless, uh, Zeus wrongfully blames the people, um, and uh, now Hercules is, is going to be a part of it. But inevitably, uh, there will be some good things for Hercules, but what I'm excited about is not only this character, but wow, this is just ace casting. This is perfect casting to have Brett Goldstein come in as this character. He is, I mean, he's great actor in general, but he is so, so good on Ted Lasso. Um, I've loved him there as pretty much everybody who's seen the show has. Um, He's fantastic, but also just seems like such a perfect choice. Just tonally, 
spiritually, like everything about this, like he's just going to just, it, you only see him for a second in this mid credit scene, but he already fully embodies this character, which just shows uh, how on point this casting choice was. So super excited for Hercules and uh, that much more excited to have Brett Goldstein be the one playing him and, and getting ready to take on a larger role in the MCU. It's just awesome. Yeah, I, I've never seen Ted Lasso, and I knew that obviously when when Zeus was looking up and, and talking to someone, I knew he was coming. I, I've always been a Hercules fan. Uh, Hercules and Thor have always had a, a very funny relationship, uh, rival, a rivalry and a friendship, and I'm very curious how they're going to portray the character in the MCU. Again, the small snippet we see of him I think he looked fantastic. I can't wait. I, Hercules is fantastic. He's. It's going to be... I have no idea if this guy from Ted Lasso is going to be able to deliver. I, I'm sure everyone loves him. Yeah, everyone loves him, so I'm, I'm going to take your, everyone's word for it. But, yeah, man, I, I thought he was fantastic. Just, just a little, the little bit we, get, we got was fantastic, and I cannot wait to see what they do. I mean, again, Hercules is a full-fledged Avenger. He's a legit Avenger. Like... So him coming into the films is not just going to be and like I, in my opinion an antagonistic role. It's going to be an antagonistic villain potentially maybe a little bit, but he'll eventually be an Avenger at one point. When they eventually launch this new Avengers team, Hercules will be on it for sure. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. So may have an antagonistic start, but before too long. He will be an Avenger, and it's it's just going to be awesome. So our post credit scene is not so much about future gazing in the MCU. It's just a happy ending for Jane Foster, where she is in Valhalla. And who is there to welcome her but Heimdall himself, who thanks her for protecting his son, uh, and then, of course, welcomes her to Valhalla it's a beautiful ending for Jane Foster. It's something that she absolutely deserves, that she has absolutely earned. And part of how she earned it was not necessarily having the expectation or promise of this eternal reward. Again, she didn't make the choice to secure a place for herself in Valhalla. It was out without any expectation of that being the result, just making the choice she made because it was the right thing to do. Um, but nevertheless, uh, just as she was worthy of Mjolnir, here she is worthy of this place in Valhalla and it's wonderful. And it's just, it's just a beautiful, sweet ending to this movie. And I think that I don't interpret this the way that a lot of other people do of some people saying, Oh, this means that Jane survived or she gets to come back or whatever the case may be. And that's not to say that Jane and or Heimdall or anybody else who might be in Valhalla won't come back. Death, has a tendency to not be permanent in comic books and in movies based on comic books. So uh, that's always a possibility, but I didn't take this as a promise that that's what's going to happen. I just took this as, you know, this is the the beautiful, happy ending that, that Jane Foster deserves and has earned for herself. So that's what it is for now. And if it turns into anything else, great. But even if she were to come back, they didn't need Valhalla to do that. They could just find a way for her to come back and explain it after the and explain it afterwards. So uh, I don't think we're meant to see this as a promise of the future for Jane, um, but just uh, the rightful ending that she was worthy of. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I 
I leave, I look at this as the, a good, a happy ending and potentially leaving the door open. But I think it's mostly an ending, to be honest. But that's just me. But I think it definitely leaves the door open a little bit. Especially, and Heimdall too. I think I don't, I don't I don't think you'd reintroduce that just for just for prosperity's sake. I think there is a little bit of leaving the door open, but just also also trying to give it a little bit of a cherry on top too, a little yeah. bit. So but even think, even Heimdall needed that though because I agree. You know, he yeah. has a very you know grim and and dark ending, especially because he's just dispatched so quickly in Avengers: Infinity War to know that. That wasn't the end for him that he does get this, you know, eternal paradise in, in Valhalla like it, it's it's a good ending for him, too, not just for Jane Foster. So that's where, like, it's just it's comforting for us to know and think of them as characters as this is where they're at, even if they're no longer able to, you know, accompany all of our other faves from uh, from the MCU. So that's where I take it for now. But if it turns into something else in the future, great, I'm I'm here for it. But if this is it. Um, I'm totally fine with this uh, as it's presented in this post credit scene. And that is it for our Thor Love and Thunder spoiler review. So I don't know how I ever thought we might be able to get this done in under two hours. Here we are over two and a half because it's just what we do here. So I guess yep. it's a good thing yep. the movie was only two hours. Otherwise, we would still oh my God. be going and there. going. But hey, it's not four hours like the uh, No Way Home spoiler review or whatever that was. Like, yeah, it's, we've had some long ones uh, <laughs> over, over the, the course of our days here on the MCU Fan Show. But we thank you for listening this far. For those of you who are still left and listened all the way to the end of this podcast, make sure you check out Fan Show Plus either at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MCU Fan Show. Please remember to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, and then follow Paul in these places he's about to tell you. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Also, please follow me, the uh, my channel, the, uh, the Comic Binge on YouTube. We do lots of great comic stuff, a lot of MCU stuff, lots of really fun uh, MCU-required reading episodes for you to check out that will be going over comic books to read after you watch the movies, whether it be, you know, foreshadowing the future or just, you know, if you, if you love the characters. We will be doing a Thor Love and Thunder episode here in a couple of weeks. We'll be doing the Beta Ray Bill introduction, which I think is just a long overdue. And with Sif surviving gives me an indication that you could be seeing Beta Ray Bill in Sean's uh, pitched uh, as Gar- new as Guardian Disney Plus show, which is and I'm being serious. There's a lot of potential there. So I don't think they're Sith- waiting for my pitch. I I think it's something they're probably well, planning. But either way, uh, Beta Ray Bill should be in that show. And with Sif, with Sif surviving, um, it will be with her as being a love interest for Bill. I think it's it's very telling and very uh, a lot of potential, a lot of real good potential there. So yeah, check us out. Uh, episode will be coming out soon. Uh, this week we'll be doing a uh, the most the five top five underutilized uh, Spider-Man c- or characters that are either allies or villains. So look for that for the Spider-Man Council new episode this week. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.